0: i'm aaron armstrong i'm pete moran i'm pete moran
1: (laughs) i'm aaron armstrong
0: yeah we love to watch it's the mimicry Uh, episode right
1: oh yeah it's very rude bugs are mean (laughs) we love to watch mignola (laughs) mignola and del toro go to hollywood off when I have to dispense with a bit to get back to our rigid structure. We're over five years, we can't throw out structure? (laughs) Don't you love it when you watch a sitcom and they're like, oh, they're throwing out structure. That's when people stop listening. They're mostly listening for structure. We're
0: we're like the Big Bang Theory of podcasts, right? Like, I just want to go. I want people who claim that they love each other to be really mean to each other for 19 minutes. I want someone to pass... To make reference to a scientist that I've seen post on Twitter, and I want the day to be over.
1: <laughs> and then by then, by then my my Percocet will start kicking in. Ideally, my life,
0: to be honest. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh yeah we're
0: uh, we got a lot to talk about so let's just we just set up this fucking double month so I I'll mimic you throughout the episode to keep the joke going but I I'm gonna try to get out of as quickly as possible if that works for you
1: um I'm doing this can't help it it's part of your evolutionary track to become a mimic Uh, yeah
0: I wish you kidding me human (laughs) face
1: coming up with new ideas sucks
0: yeah yeah where we live to watch we movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course uh, of a month around that theme usually uh but this is our third summer in a row we decided to go big we're doing a double month uh and this is actually the double month that i am really excited uh, about this one we're we're doing nine episodes and we're it's it's messy it's not necessarily fully contained to something super specific but we're going to take you all on a little bit of a journey through uh two artists That we really like, but not in a full coverage of their work as their work both interacts and then eventually stops interacting with two of our forgotten uh, horror based comic book uh, movie icons, (laughs) Hellboy and Blade. Uh, So this this really is like it's a little bit of a mess. Uh, but it's actually very, uh, or in the the order that we want to do it is very specific.
1: But it's kind of messes in the right word, sprawling. We're like we're telling a story about the rise from alternative comics, independent comics in the '90s, through um, those comics bringing uh, superheroes into the mainstream.
0: Yeah, the the two uh, two superheroes that we're going to be talking about are superheroes that kind of came out before. Uh, the third wave of superhero movie blockbusters, which we're in today. Um, the first wave, I think, generally goes from 1989's Batman to 1997's Batman and Robin. Um, and then, you know, there's a smattering of things uh, for a couple years, including Blade, that's one of the few hits in that era, kind of relaunches with Spider Man. And kind of goes till which, and then that kind of fades out. And
1: we're in the Fantastic Four era. Yeah,
0: like two thousand seven, and then uh, gets like a double kickstart of the two different paths that um, the superhero movies can go on with the kind of interconnected universe or the grim dark. So in two thousand eight, you have Iron Man, you have Dark Knight, and that kind of kicks off the superhero that we're in. And um, you know, the weirdest and, and shortest one I really think is that like. 2002 to 2007 which basically is like it had the spider-man movies uh an interesting hulk movie and then hellboy and blade movies that were like worth talking about uh blade obviously or hellboy you know or sorry blade obviously starts earlier but it becomes this weird one-off in this like oh like it's i think it was more seen when it came out as a cool awesome Wesley Snipes movie and then people were kind of like oh yeah it's based on a comic book person everyone's like oh weird you know it's it's less it was probably even a time where they tried to play down the association to the fact that it was a comic book movie because after Batman and Robin superhero movies and comic book movies were toxic for a couple of years until Raimi brought them back but we also wanted to use this to talk about two things that we love. We love Hellboy and we like Mike Mignola. And we also love Guillermo Del Toro. And Guillermo Del Toro obviously interacts uh, with with both uh, Blade and, um, and Hellboy. So we're going to tell that story. I'm going to kind of lay out what we're going to do. Because we really want to be somewhat comprehensive. And tell kind of different phases of their story. And then with the real meat of everything being Hellboy. And Hellboy 2 and Blade 2 in that era with like three fantastic movies. So we're going to start today with talking about their kind of early Hollywood adventures. Um, So for Mike Mignola, that's being the concept, uh, creating concept art and an art style essentially for 2001 Disney movie Atlantis, The Lost Empire. One of the few Disney movies of that era, their yearly animation, big blockbuster that I had never seen before. Uh, Peter, I think it was the first time you'd seen it as well.
1: It's the, yeah, it's definitely the first time I've seen it. Um, it was a, but it was a Disney movie. So I saw ads out the wazoo for it as a kid. I just didn't end up actually seeing it.
0: Once, and it came out in 2001 for me. So this is like, I, I've never seen Milan. I've never seen Treasure Planet. Like this was the era that I basically had stopped going to those because I was, uh, you know, I was a senior in high school when. When it came out and it wasn't like calling my name like the Toy Story movies is like this is funny for adult like Atlantis and looked like a kid movie for kids. And I um, wasn't interested in it with no songs uh, and I wasn't interested in it. Um,
1: and then we're it's also very to, funny to me that you as a uh, what age did you say 18 year old. It is funny that you would be turned off by the fact that it doesn't have more songs at
0: 18. It's <laughs> like musicals Peter.
1: I don't know what to tell you. Uh,
0: I was this is the same time I uh, around the same time I discovered Little Shop of Horrors uh, somewhere in the the sixteen to eighteen range and was like watching it. Well, if you count at the video store where I would put it on in the background on a daily basis,
1: that's a great video store poll because even if you're looking at other titles or you're organizing, you're pulling shit out of the returns box, whatever you're doing. Yeah, selling somebody uh, bags of popcorn. Um, You can enjoy the movies still, which is not true if you had put on like, I don't know, Amistad.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, a lot of great places to watch Amistad. One of the few where it doesn't work is if yeah, at the video store when you're working and you have the four TVs on the back wall. It was so, cum. Aaron, it's come. That's what I was saying. Uh,
1: yeah. What so, are the two films that were coming? Yeah, we only got to
0: one. Off... Yeah, I was talking. We were Atlantis. So, anyways, Atlantis, which uh, which uh, Magnolia did the concept art for, and I was like, is that too tenuous? And then you see the movie, and you're like, holy shit! This <laughs> literally like they took. I think we were ready drunk. to
1: pivot in case the movie didn't bear it out, but like there are shots in it where I'm like, that's that is a Mike Mignola yeah. skull.
0: Yeah, and he said as much too. Like, uh, as a, we'll talk about it, but like the animators were—they got concept art for it, but they were like, "We're gonna make this in the style of Mignola To the point that um, when uh, Mignola saw it uh, <laughs> in theaters, he's like, "I really like the way you designed the hands on all your characters." And they're like, "Yeah, they're your hands. We studied how you would do your drawings. They and had meetings. We yeah, to we had meetings. His style. Yeah. Well, I mean, they paid for his style." But I don't think he realized that the, he wasn't like they weren't just getting a ship. Like the animators were like, draw like this, design like this around his style, which is uh, fascinating. It does make for a very interesting movie. I don't think it's successful necessarily, but I, it, it it definitely for for you know kind of a first foray into this independent comic book artists uh, Hollywood. Like it does bear his stamp very well, and then. The other one is Mimic, which is a movie I had seen when it came out, uh, which is Del Toro's second movie after Kronos, which is great. And Miramax hires him, up-and-comers, you know, Spanish director, uh, and to, of course, get no freedom whatsoever to make an American monster movie. Uh, And He makes a movie about uh, monster cockroaches in New York City that I did not like when I was uh, 14. And I like a whole bunch now. Uh, I don't know how much that has to do with the director's cut. We'll get into it. But these are kind of like, in general, I think, they bear their if, – if we're really kind of setting this up for the rest of the month, these first dabblings in kind of Hollywood blockbusters. And they are blockbusters, right? They're trying to do a big – horror monster blockbuster. It doesn't end up doing that, but that's what Mimic is. And Atlantis, I mean, you can't get much bigger, even in 2001, when it was on the wane of like the yearly Disney animation release, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think these are two first movies that bear the stamps of their creators without really being an example in any capacity of like showing their full vision or the best of what's to come.
1: So we're going to... What's interesting about that <coughs> is that McMillan had fully exhibited his style by 2001 with his yeah. minus the full the, the lost empire because by then hellboy the main series was up and running he was already planning all of these extensive spinoffs which i'm going to talk about his career kind of up to hellboy with this episode and then we're going to talk about hellboy and beyond in later episodes yeah we gotta so, love him.
0: i still want to lay out the month but go yeah go
1: on um but uh with mimic also like del toro had kind of laid out his interests and in, 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 in his obsessions as a filmmaker with chronos and some of his short films yeah and like they had both expressed themselves in a much purer uh less capitalist system and then um in atlantis he received kind of a um <laughs> i wouldn't say a uh deified level of respect but it sounds like like you were you were pointing out Aaron it sounds like um the animators and and the producers in particular were like we want his style we yeah. want his steez um, and with mimic it sounds like it was the inverse where they were uh you know uh, the Weinsteins uh, particularly Bob Weinstein were trying to hammer out all of those odd eccentricities despite the fact that they courted and seduced and pulled in uh a a, a Mexican director and they were like, we want you to work with us. And then the moment they were on set, they were like, fuck you. Your budget's cut. Fuck you. Fuck you. You can't do this. Fuck you. You can't do that. Also, the movie's not about Beatles anymore. It's about cockroaches. Also, you're changing this star. You're changing that star. Um, yeah. I mean, that really is an the... interesting story of, 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 of uh, capitalism and how um, different creators can succeed within the system and different creators were very much like violently uh offended by the system or, or catered in by the system
0: yeah from uh i mean from a company and a work perspective those weinstein guys were not good dudes
1: not um, great uh, and, and
0: apparently say. uh also this bears out in their personal lives as well to a much much worse degree um
1: i wish uh, we could get through the whole episode without talking about harvey but he is part of the story unfortunately yeah
0: did he die of the coronavirus in jail yet because it's not i'm still wishing him the best on that and Aaron, yeah, i hope he dies
1: of course. despite all the harm he's done he pr- brought a walker to the courtroom and oh. for that i think we should let him go oh yeah i didn't re- him, sorry I didn't, we should give him little saint john i, I didn't actually. realize that
0: he brought a walker so i, <laughs> I redact everything i've ever said about him wanting to, yeah. to die in
1: prison uh yeah so isn't that's. That, I don't so, think that's. I don't think that's like uh, a legal thing. Like I think you can say you hope someone dies of illness in prison. I mean, I didn't say at what age I want him to die in prison,
0: <laughs>
1: but like death uh, is the ultimate illness. I yeah. Mean. I mean,
0: everyone dies, Peter.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's ironic that characters in Guillermo del Toro's mimic die, and Harvey Weinstein will die, or do you think that's just me really Man, thinking about Harvey desserts. Weinstein die?
0: It was just desserts <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean if
0: if he suffers this the same fate as various um various mimic characters so, you know I think that's just desserts I'm not saying I want it to happen mm-hmm. I am saying that no one could argue that would
1: be uh delicious and ironic in like a fun, make- like a fun gallows uh, humor way it is amazing how much time I spend thinking about how dehumanizing and racist our, our, our uh, jail system is. and then, Except. And then all of a sudden Harvey Weinstein pops up. And I'm like, but, I mean, it works great for this guy. Yeah, I don't see that as inconsistencies. I, don't, I, I do think truly
0: garbage people that have used power to uh, uh, rape and hurt people um, should be not treated great and also on top of that people who have essentially committed no crime and have no position of power that are being trampled uh, by the same system that empowers them people like harvey weinstein should not have to grapple with that i don't i don't particularly see that as an inconsistency peter
1: perfect that's really convenient for me to have uh consistent <laughs> to have an, a consistent ideology there you go think it's, uh, it's gonna work out great for me so Here's the thing. So
0: this is not a Mignola and Del Toro comprehensive view. We're picking them up with this intro episode, and we're actually – they're not going to be a part of our exit episodes, right? Because we're going to really pass through Hellboy and Blade to get to the end of this. So the next movie is uh, Blade, which as far as I know, neither of them have any uh, any (laughs) any, uh, participation in. Like I, the But but the, the first, night the 1998 Blade movie. But this is important, right? Because this movie's success sets the stage for what eventually becomes their Hollywood career. So we're almost doing like an intro to off-blockbuster, off-comic-booky comic book characters, off-brand superheroes uh, that becomes like the one – I believe this was the most successful Marvel movie of all time in 1998, which is crazy to me. People, as I mentioned, people didn't even necessarily associate with a Marvel movie, but its success leads to where Del Toro and Mignola go next. So then we're going to do Blade 2, which obvious, right? Like you have obvious where that fits in with Mignola and Del Toro. Del It's Toro, the nexus point. Yeah, Del Toro directs it. Mignola, he does some art for it, right?
1: Yeah, Mignola does. Uh, he actually like scouted locations, and yeah. did concept art, and production design for Blade Two. That's yep. where they their relationship really kicks off and pushes Del Toro towards
0: two years later doing the Hellboy movie. Uh, but we're actually so after Blade Two, we're pausing because we got to go back a little more too. Uh, we uh, are going to talk about the Hellboy comic book series, not comprehensively. It's not going to be a five hour episode. <laughs> Peter and I have will have
1: read all of it by that point. Uh, essentially, it's literally like I see. I, I'm looking to my right. I'm looking at my my shelves, and I can see the shelves sagging under the weight of these Hellboy comics. So no, it will not be comprehensive. Will
0: not be comprehensive. Well, plus I very purposely decided not to take notes because I couldn't even imagine what that looked like. So we're Peter and I have been reading. The entire Hellboy series. So, for those of you guys that know, there's essentially, like, seven official, like, Hellboy books. And those are, like, 280 pages apiece. Page. If you talk, like, the library edition, there's different omnibus and uncollected ones. But, you know, the, the whole Hellboy thing is, like, maybe 1,500 pages. And then there's probably another, I don't know, 20,000, 15,000 pages. And all these, like, from the world of Hellboy, uh, uh, which really takes some of the side characters we'll see in the Hellboy movies... And really just grows this into this massive universe that is one of the best like probably comic book universes I could ever imagine existing. It's super compelling. I have essentially six books left to go. I think Peter has seven um and that re- yeah we've been we've been reading since November it is May when we're recording this
1: so uh, it will not be comprehensive super specifically guided to our interests like it is. It, it, it is like every single issue I'm like, so goddamn good every yeah. single issue i'm like mike mignola was because he was the writer for um, for all
0: of it yeah he he doesn't do the art for all of it but he is like story story lead yeah
1: yep. he doesn't necessarily script every issue but he's like story he's story lead for everything and all of his int- all of his interests are just basically one-to-one with Aaron and mine i've i've basically read one issue where i was like that wasn't that that interesting
0: yeah i I just read one that wasn't that interesting and I it, it felt weird, right? It was like, oh, okay, that was two three stars. Um. yeah
1: and the other thing that's that's I'm just gonna leave as a note here is that while Mike Mignola is doing all of that shit, he's also has like a alternative, just like completely separate. Victorian Gothic horror universe with Baltimore that has absolutely nothing to do with Hellboy. Like,
0: (laughs) and he's doing like Batman comics, right? Like he's doing like the doom that came to Gotham and stuff.
1: Yes. So we're going to talk about, yes, we're going to talk about Mignola uh, up till about he's making, uh, he's making Hellboy. And then we're going to leave a lot of that fun stuff for later. And then we're going to talk about Del Toro up till now.
0: Yeah. And then we'll, we'll also on that episode where we go through the comics, Again, it's not going to be our full review, but we are going to watch the um, HBO Hellboy animated movies that came out after the first Hellboy movie, but are prequels to that movie because Peter and I had never seen them. And part of this is just fun to kind of get a more comprehensive view. So primary will be comics, Mignola, Hellboy. We'll talk a little bit about those movies. Uh, Then the next episode is Hellboy 2004. Uh, Then we're going to go. We're going to dip a little bit. Right. So. They go and do Hellboy. What happens to Blade? Well, Blade Trinity happens to Blade, a movie that I actually am somewhat of a defender of. But I also haven't seen it since it came out. But I remember still kind of liking it. Um, So we're going to do Blade Trinity. uh, And then we get to exit Blade Trinity and kind of leave that 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 rotting corpse uh, to go do what I'm going to say now is my favorite of the movies that we're going to be covering, uh, which is Hellboy 2, the Golden Army peter's probably the second favorite i would give you do, do you are you, a, are you a hellboy one or hellboy two preference
1: um i'm a hellboy i'm a blade two then yeah. um then hellboy two uh preference because that feels like it's finally um del toro um uh, almost expanding into hellboy territory as opposed to trying to summarize um you know Hundreds of pages of comics and into, into one yeah. movie, and why adore the first Hellboy movie. It is a little bit like, well, I read the comics with Golden Army. I'm like, oh, this is you like expanding out. This is you like really engaging with the text. It's it's yep. it's almost like it, I view it almost. We'll get to it, but I almost view it like um, uh, how Kubrick engaged with The Shining. He's like, I'm stripping all this bullshit out. I'm just taking what I want. Here. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's uh, I think the way artists should adapt material. That's why Hellboy 2 is so fucking good.
0: Yeah. So that would make a great fucking ending. But instead, we decided to go, OK, basically, Blade does this Spike TV show. That's a direct sequel disappears. Hellboy 3 famously tries to get made. Where what is our, you know. Del Toro goes on to other stuff. Magnola goes on to other stuff. Or, I mean, he goes on to more Hellboy stuff, but not in, in the movies for a while. Where does that leave, with those two artists working together gone, where does that leave uh, from a pop culture perspective, Blade and Hellboy? And so our last two episodes we're going to cover is uh, looking at Blade, the last the ba- last basically like pop culture, non-comic book incarnation of Blade which is uh, from, a, we're going to cover the Blade anime series that was a one season thing that came out in like 2014, 15. I've never seen it. I actually hear some okay things about it, um, but just kind of a fun way to kind of say, hey, whatever happened to that Blade character? Well, they tried something else. This would be perfect if we were doing this podcast in like 2025 and could do the, uh, <laughs> so whatever the, the new Disney one's going to be. But um we're not so we're gonna do that and then we're gonna end on a movie that peter and i have never have neither of us have seen that i think if anyone we're somewhat poised to like it but is not a well-received movie and that is the 2019 remake or reboot or whatever you want to call it of, of hellboy which does have Magnolia's involvement who talked about how much he hated the those horror stuff so that'll be a good time for us to talk about their friendship their time in hollywood their time working on these franchises and then where the breakup of them being able to continue on with those series led them in blade anime uh one blade on its own and mignola with a movie that everybody hates but he insists is way better (laughs) yeah so i mean that's what we're doing it's sprawling it's messy it doesn't have necessarily consistent through line we're not going and You know, we talked about doing some more del Toro movies, but the thing is, like, if if this podcast goes on another five years, there's a good chance we'll just end up at some point doing all the del Toro movies. So we decided to really drill down in Blade and Hellboy, with the exception of this opener, where we get a taste of what led uh, Hollywood to notice our our two uh, beautiful young boys.
1: Our beautiful young dapper boys.
0: So really quickly, Peter, let's take us to Del Toro and Magnola, and then we'll we'll do our, our break. We'll go into Atlantis, we'll go into a mimic. Neither of those are probably gonna merit more than 30 to 45 minutes of discussion. So let's let's drill in. Who is Mike Daphne Mignola. <laughs>
1: definitely his actual middle name, Mike Daphne McNull. Um, so uh, Mike did the same route that I think you're going to see in a lot of comic book artists, which is um, he, did, he did some
0: first and foremost.
1: <laughs> he did he, he uh, did inks and in other sort of, you know um, uh, he did inks so, and other. Sorry, uh, other can you spice of, this up by doing it? But like Ken Burns like
0: Mike Mcnoll. Was <laughs> born, old country road, <laughs> my Strasbourg, Germany,
1: in, <laughs> in the the humble suburb of Berkeley, California, Oakland. Yeah. Oakland was a tiny town of three hundred thousand at the time. <laughs>
0: Raised by two Christian parents who'd say, "Boy, you're gonna burn in hell someday," and an idea was born. <laughs> What if What if I wasn't gonna burn in hell But hell was gonna burn around this boy
1: By gum He decided I'm gonna make a boy burn in hell (laughs) And he's not gonna like it very much
0: He did some experiments On the neighborhood boys That are still classified By most of the local police departments
1: (laughs) (laughs) The thing about tire fires Is you can see them burning For miles around so we have a lot of accounts of what Mike McNaw did, allegedly, to several boys in his neighborhood.
0: Then in 1975, his dad said, Hey boy, don't lose this crown. <laughs> and he immediately lost it. He felt bad about that crown ever since. It was a very important family crown as he came to understand it.
1: His family history was full of crowns. In their teeth, that is. The dental hygiene of the Mignola family was not great. Neither
0: Strasbourg, Germany, or Oakland, California had free dental care.
1: (laughs) We see in this letter that Mike Mignola wrote to his father, Year of Our Lord, 1967. Father. Did you vote for Goldwater? (laughs) (laughs) Father, I heard this band... The Clash.
0: 1967? I've been having visions of the future, father.
1: And they have a song called Straight to Hell. I think that's where I'm going, father. Straight to Hell.
0: Also, I keep hearing this name, M.I.A., over and over. Not sure if it's a reference to to the Vietnam War, or someday straight, Straight to Hell will be sampled by an artist with that name.
1: Um, yeah so uh, <laughs> Mike Mignola um, California born artist um, and he went on the route that a lot of uh, young artists do which is they work for the big publishers uh, if they can get the work it's good work if you can get it right um, but it well based
0: on of- all the books I've read about the comic book industry no
1: yeah. For for somebody that has absolutely the way that he talks about it is he's like when you're an up-and-coming artist, it's just nice to like have somebody like put you through the motions.
0: Yeah, I mean they seem to like it because they're twenty and they get to draw for like yes. Here's
1: for farthings. Yes, you're you're getting you're getting ahead of me a little bit, but we're getting Sorry. there. So he um he ended up drawing for Doctor Strange, Rocket Raccoon, a bunch of Marvel comics, Wolverine, um and a couple a couple um sort of epic comics. He sort of uh, edged his way in the early 90s into some epic comics um art which uh were creator owned comics so that term is going to come back in a second yeah. um but yeah he he also ended up doing some work for dc he did gotham by gaslight he did legends of the dark knight the doom that came to gotham which is kind of a cute like uh like a lovecraft doom
0: doom that became the gotham was post hellboy though right
1: yes in the 2000s but he did some of this creator in the year 2000 i should say um and he did uh some of this stuff separate from being creator owned comics because it was you know uh he was he was pulled in um and what's interesting is that like despite the fact he's written um two goth two uh batman books that people generally like and he's generally happy with he doesn't really like batman as a character And he didn't like these kind of worlds as, from his own perspective, he didn't like these kind of worlds because he felt very hemmed in by chronology and making sure you're fitting with the system. And he had stories he wanted to tell, but he actually didn't have a character to draw around them. Um, so, uh, he was, he he was at a Salt Lake City Comic Con and he decided, oh, I'm going to (laughs) draw, um a little uh, monster guy because he was just that was what he used to do he used to draw yeah. little monster guys and you know hand them out sell them out whatever because he was an artist um and he drew this little monster guy and it was like the boy from hell or something was what he titled it um and he uh eventually he like that, that idea got stuck in his craw and he took this this little uh, illustration he made and he was like this will be my character that i can explore all of my my fascinations with and what's kind of fun also in this era is that he, he he states his kind of origin story as like being obsessed with Bram Stoker. And in 1993, he got to the official movie adaptation comic book of the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola movie, which I haven't, see, I haven't read, but I, I feel like I have to read it now. It's for Topps Comics, so I hope I can actually like get it. It's not one of those weird, you know, comics lost to time. But uh, yeah, so he actually, like, he, he, before he even got to Hellboy, he had some experience in sort of delving in, like, gothic horror and these sort of traditional, like, Victorian archetypes of horror um, before he kicked off Hellboy. Um, and Hellboy is a uh, massive enterprise, as Aaron was talking about. Um, Hellboy was uh, one of those, those things where, like, he, his, his universe just get, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the series starts with this cap this um you know quote unquote post-Cavendish era, which is um there's a series of events where Hellboy's uh paternal figure, uh Dr. Trevor Brome, dies, and he's sent off at this adventure to fight Rasputin. We're gonna get into all of that um next uh not next time, sorry. Uh, we're gonna get all of the next time. Next, next next When we, next get, next, yeah, next, when next we get into that we're going to get all of that when we get to the Hellboy movie, like what the, the timeline and all that stuff is. But he basically took a basic timeline and he started working backwards and building out this like sort of uh, almost like legends of this universe uh, narrative. And yeah. then he started working forwards. And then that got heavily serialized in a sense that in a way that like rivals some avengers comics where he has these characters that have their full uh, blown arcs these characters go off on their own adventures you're expected to track these characters even though you haven't seen them in you know uh, uh, a few hundred pages um and like so going from the first tellboy book forward there's going to be a ton of kind of linear narrative stuff and blah, 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 blah. blah yeah. and all that, And then behind that, he's just chucking in ideas. And that's what I want to get to is he's just chucking in ideas. And the old stuff and from Hellboy all the way to the like seventh volume, he is doing all of the writing. Asterix, there's a writer named John Byrne we got a call out uh, who helped with the scripting in the first issue. Um, He did all the writing, all the art. And he made himself a name in this creator owned comic uh universe within dark horse that he owns he owns hellboy he can do whatever he wants he's actually selling hellboy art books um for his like um covid uh drawings that he did of like hellboy in weird situations and all these weird little monsters like he he owns that shit because that was like an independent movement in the in the 90s going forward for uh comics creators because in the marvel and dc universe you can get your shit stolen very quickly by the suits. So he got super invested in owning his art, getting invested in art, and he started expanding out as a name because of Hellboy.
0: Uh, yeah. And there's a couple things to kind of call out too, that I think especially relates to this movie and some other stuff. There's uh he has a very distinctive uh, art style. Oh, which yeah. I think is extremely important. I mean, it is, um, it reminds me a lot. If you've never read a Hellboy comic of the way that the Batman animated, um, Television show looked different than any other animation that you'd see, and then as you grow up and you read about how they made it, like they didn't—they did all their animation on black paper as opposed to white paper, and so it really felt dark. And uh, the the effect. Can I call something
1: really quickly? Yeah. Do you know he worked with Bruce Tim on certain character <clears> designs? I did. Yes. Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's, but the audience might not. I'm not the only one who gets information um, from this. Podcast. I, I did not know if you were
1: getting to that, but yeah. So
0: he. No, got, I, I was not. But like th- when you see his sake,
1: art, he worked with he worked with Bruce Tim on the Batman animated series, and the version of Mister Freeze that you know and like people love, um that's Mike Mignola. He made
0: Arnold Schwarzenegger
1: in a lab. <laughs> That's at, the the time pre- at the same time, he was getting
0: at the same time he's getting premonitions of future Clash albums. <laughs> he made Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, remember, Strasbourg, Germany It's all coming back. Even as I'm going through these Hellboy books, it's immediate when one of them is the artist done by him. They're these slumped, sad-eyed, hollow-eyed figures with slumped shoulders and giant hands. Almost like... Like, their hands are, like, pulling their shoulders down to earth. Peter, you were actually, uh, worth stopping here for a sec, because you were worried when I said, I'm going to make Hellboy my next series, after I read a couple issues, you're like, do you like the art style?
1: Because you're like, going to be in that art style for a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I actually, like, it it's one of those things where at first it does feel a little bit, because it's like... It's almost like assembled cutouts, like the early comics that he does. And I I don't mean this insultingly. It's like he's layering different cutouts on top of each other to create not a 3D image, but like a impressionistic image. Like instead of drawing Hellboy, it's like I cut out the red part and then I put his clothes on over it. And like my one rule is like no lines that aren't shadows right? Like, if it's a line, it has to be because of a shadow or something like that. And, um, and it gives it this unique, this extremely unique style that makes a lot of sense why when Disney is doing this turn of the century Jules Verness adventure and looking for something that doesn't look like a typical Disney animated movie that they gravitate towards his uh, aesthetic and character design. But also he has such a specific style. The other thing that really drove him that I think is critical to talk about uh, when it comes to the rest of the Hellboy stuff and where he ends up going is that he was very part of the reason he didn't work well in that DC Marvel. some of the early stuff that he did is that he hated the idea of a house style. Like when he came in and wanted to draw, say Dr. Strange, he didn't want to have to make Dr. Strange look like the last person who drew Dr. Strange. He wanted to make Doctor Strange look like how he wanted to make Doctor Strange look. You know, and you see that that kind of philosophy in the books that that we've been going through, Peter. Because it is very clear that if someone is drawing Abe Sapien or another artist is drawing Abe Sapien or Liz or Hellboy, it's going to look very different. And for someone who has, you know, all the control in the world over his universe – he seems to be inspiring the artists as they do it to really consistently and constantly do their own visual interpretations that they want to draw or wherever their strengths lie in art in the characters themselves and so you have like even collected books where the issues are drawn by different people with just very different aesthetics and it really reminds me a lot of like you know, Sandman or uh, or what's that book? Is it Z? Is that the one that you zero, the one that you zero? Had, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Where L. like Cots. those were specifically like I want to get different visual styles around this one consistent writer's words at. So that was like a specific aesthetic choice, as opposed to um, it has the same effect. But as opposed to this, which is like, yeah, I want to get good writers to draw Hellboy or I want to get good, good people in to contribute to the, this giant universe I've created, I'm not going to tell them that they need to make their Hellboy look like my Hellboy. Like, I want to give them the same freedom that I always wanted to take the characters in whatever visual way that they want. And I, I just think for someone who has as much control over the, his own universe as he has, and is such a unique visual style... Uh, That it's it's one of those things where, like, it could have been easy for him to become a huge hypocrite, right? And we never would even know he was a huge hypocrite, right? Because he probably wouldn't say that he hated drawing in house style, like in all his interviews, right? But instead, he really, like, he really believed that. He's like, no, I, like, he really believes in this concept of making unique characters design. And it's amazing the way he's let people do that with all of his characters throughout these, like, thousands of pages we've read at this point.
1: Yes, and and he started bringing in when he really started. He he had guest authors uh around this period, but the one that's most notable is he brought in uh, a uh, comics legend, Richard Corbin, mm-hmm. and Richard Corbin's art style is my it, 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 he's like my favorite comic books artist. His his art style is just like so gorgeous, and it's very fine line drawings. It's not geo, it's not geometric the way uh, McNola's art is. It is so different, but you flip the page from, you know, in the big collected volumes, you flip the page and all of a sudden there's a new Hellboy story and he's in Africa and the art style looks different. And you're like, oh, my God, like it's like a breath of fresh air because like he clearly worked with these artists um, to make sure that they both brought themselves to the project, but also like there's a in all the backs of these books there's um illustration notes and they talk about like and i always read them because it's always fascinating where it's like mike didn't like this because he thought that the the monster looked too cute he said he said hold on to this design for a later comic where we have a friendly monster and then like (laughs) mike mike's notes are not about like this doesn't look like my style mike's notes are like this isn't hitting the tone or like you can get weirder, dude. Like, yeah. I, I hired you on because you're weird. Do weird shit. And like people in the notes, like have Mike's notes, which are very clearly written in one handwriting. And then they have like John Arcudi's notes, and where he's like, I don't know if this quite fits the style. Like it's it's very cute at the end of the books. They have like just a catered selection of like Here's all the monsters we wanted to draw, and here's what people's notes were on the very various reasons why we rejected them. Like, yeah, and like that 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 thing is 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 enticing to me because he's not guiding people towards him; he's guiding people deeper within themselves. Which, yeah, I, it, at least from my perspective, I've never worked with the guy. Yeah, but that's what I'm here. I've heard from interviews, and that's what it seems like from the um the notes at the end of the book. He's not he's not saying like, oh, this. Too too many rounded edges. <laughs> Your hands are too smooth. Do you gotta count the shadows.
0: Fifteen shadows per character. Count them. <laughs> All right, this is I'm basically like a T.J.I. Fridays flare wise, but for
1: shadows on my character.
0: <laughs> you son of a bitch.
1: <laughs> That's a it's half a page just a screed about how much he loves shadows. Yeah, that dude. Have you even listened
0: the- to Bauhaus? I even like the Iranian Horror movie that came out a couple of years ago just cuz it's called Shadows. <laughs> uh, uh
1: yeah. Yeah, so yeah, let's that's...
0: let's pivot a little. So Yeah. Where where was our other coming? uh Cutie Pie boy?
1: Um so we've also got uh Guillermo <laughs> Can del Toro. we change the name of this month to our two
0: Cutie Pie boys? Or no. Uh yes, our
1: two Cutie Pie
0: boys. I mean Del Toro's. I I I guess I don't know what Magnolia like not the, not not in the type of cutie pie boy we mean, but like I think we can agree, Del Toro is a is a hundred percent certified cutie pie.
1: He's an adorable little teddy bear man. Yeah, um, so he's um, so uh, Del Toro was uh, obviously like in a lot of these direct, these like big cult directors. There's a story about them falling in love with film right away. Like that's not super interesting. Like oh, he played with his father's Super 8 camera. Like that's not super interesting but you know he's a guy who uh put uh, threw himself at the concept of film and not just uh live action film but animation he was somebody who wanted to get involved in the technical aspects of film production like to the point where like later he he was involved as an animation consultant on like kung fu panda 2 yeah like and he worked on this netflix animated show called troll hunters i believe it is and like he actually was like in the studio working on animation bits to make sure they flew well. Like that's, that's like, that's like a different level of filmmaker, right? Like, um, that's not someone yeah. who's just like, uh, a, you know, an auteur obsessed with power. That's someone who's like obsessed with the concept of like what visuals come out on film. So, um, he, uh, he made some short films before he worked on this, uh, show called, uh, La Hora Mercada, which is sort of like a, seems like a sort of like a mexican twilight zone
0: yeah a um, lot of people came from that right like yeah Chibot came from that
1: yes emmanuel lubezki alfonso Cuarón, and that's kind of how like they all became buddies um no. which is very very cute um and why they're so supportive of each other and then like a lot of the like i, tell,
0: of, you, I, I tell you one of those is the shit friend i don't know if they know that about him but <laughs>
1: Like, I don't like Alfonso Coron, but I like him personally. Oh, you in mean Cuarón.
0: No, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the other of the three amigos.
1: You're not a Lubesque fan?
0: No, he's not one of the three amigos. The three amigos that they call, them- uh, they call themselves that.
1: Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. I
0: Inerutu? <laughs> yeah,
1: Inerutu. Inerutu. Um, I don't really like... Because, uh, I, I mean, I don't
0: like his films, and he also seems like a I've- pretentious asshole, where the other two do not.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like Iñárritu's movies, uh, but Iñárritu and Caron... I love Caron's movies. Yeah, I do um, too. But um, Children that, of Men is one of my favorite movies. Um, but uh, they, they all, like, talk very adorably about each other because they're all, like, friends from yeah. back then. Uh, Del, Tor- Del Toro also, like, immediately got involved with, like, special effects work. He worked with Dick Smith, who was, like, a special effects legend. Like, he worked on The Exorcist, but he also, like, he was the guy who transformed uh, Marlon Brando into uh, Vito Corleone in um, uh, The Godfather. Like he was one of those guys who like, just like has like a stacked record. Like look up, look up Dick Smith's record. Like he worked on, he worked on Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, The Deer Hunters. He worked on fucking Scanners with David Cronenberg. Like Dick Smith is just like a legend. And Del Toro was very lucky to like study under him. Um, and he spent 10 years as a makeup designer and formed his own company before he finally made. Uh, so at 33, he was imported into Hollywood. So this is someone that, like, had made an impressive first film, Kronos, which is, like, both, like, I feel like a calling card film, but also, like, in and of itself is really fun. Like, it's it's it has great performances. It's very human. Like, there's lots of great just, like, kid actors and old man actors like he was very involved in like humanity of the characters so this isn't uh early yeah i, like, mean, yeah, it's I love special chronos. effects it's,
0: yeah chronos is great
1: it's not a special effects reel especially like that criterion restoration is yeah. just
0: cool. gorgeous
1: um, and so del toro was given a a fairly sizable budget from miramax to shoot and mimic um but we all know what that means with uh the heart the weinstein brothers which means um the 30 million dollar budget just got hemmed and hawed and cut into and some of that got cut apart for for marketing costs uh and all of that and del toro after making mimic almost left hollywood yeah because at, we did he was right? in mexico he had like a a, a sense of a sense of personal freedom and all of that. And then he was like, okay, I'm going to go make movies that I feel like express myself as a person. And then he went to Spain to make films for a, a period of time. Yeah, he made time devil's backbone. Back. Yeah. Yes. And then he made devil's backbone, which is just like a, a, a glorious, like uh, a piece of arrival um and then he also made pan's labyrinth uh around the time that he made uh hellboy which was him being like you know dipping his toes back in the waters of hollywood which um so yeah he was he was a a young talent that hollywood was looking to chew up and spit out and he absolutely refused to be
0: well and that keeps happening to him right like think about being a del toro fan which um, probably most people listening to this are is that like you know how many movies he has been close to doing in various stages and he openly talks about it, right? Like too. Like uh, you know, he was gonna do obviously Hellboy Three is something he still talks about that he'd love to do. Um he just has always had trouble getting Hollywood to give him money, so he does this thing where, you know, he goes and, you know, does a Pan's Lab or does a devil's backbone. Obviously both great movies. And then, like, he settles for lower budgets or something where he can have a little more creative control or get the rating that he wants and stuff like that. So, like, we talked about this when we did our the only other Del Toro movie that we've covered to date, um, which is The Shape of Water, where, like, he wanted to make a creature. Like, that came about because he tried to make Creature of the Black Lagoon. And he did all the scripting and did all this stuff. And, you know, the creature fucks the lady. And they're like, Whoa! No, 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 we're not doing that. He's like, oh, okay. Well, I got another idea. <laughs> what if I just do that? Um, so he, he becomes New York when he says it like that. But, like, he, you know, he's actually had few movies, but, like, every movie, I've seen all of his movies, every one is compelling in some way. And I think he has a couple masterpieces in there, but they all seem a little bit defined here and there by fights with budgets or studios or, or what he has to get approved to kind of do as much of his vision as he can, but he still just seems like such a joyful presence who still is just so happy. He gets to make these things. Um, and
1: mimic is a dry run for his later movies. And while blade two is like one of my favorite movies of all time, it's just like a movie. i have very close to my heart. Blade two is also a dry run for his later movies that people love more. So very, very excited to talk about these two guys how they came together how they split apart and how this relationship informed hollywood for you know decades going forward
0: yeah and what the what the corpse of their former projects looks like in uh a 2019 reboot and an anime series interesting
1: yeah so aaron let's get into it with atlantis the last empire lost empire
0: yeah it's not the it's one of the first peter Right, and, like, yeah, you, one you, you're first. just counting like the Roman, the Holy Roman, Britain, France. Did, did the Dutch have an empire? They like the, they had a small In one, Africa, right?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, lot definitely not the the lot, last. It was the Dutch East the,
1: the Dutch East, <laughs> <But> East <laughs> Indies. Yeah, that, the American. I mean, empire. that
0: was a trading company. The inland
1: empire. Oh. Kern, she's running it great. Yeah, there's rabbits. Empire Records, great. Ethan Embry, c- he's running. The, he's running the whole thing. Ethan Embry, Embry, he's Embry of the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> he's like an empress. But not an emperor, because he just thought it was a little bit too controlling, a little fascist. But uh, if you do uh, speak his name in it. Look, he's he's just Mark. They're open till midnight, okay? You're saying he's not the emperor of the records? No, he's like,
0: he's actually like the lowest rung on the totem pole, if I remember that. And we already cut a couple minutes ago, probably. So yeah, let's talk about the last lost empire.
1: (laughs) The last lost empire.
0: Yeah, it's the last lost we found. Empire of the Lost, the land of the lost, you could say. (laughs) We're talking about land of the lost. Haven't I love that we just do? Tell me all about it. Yeah, when we get back, right after break, first thing. What would happen if Mister Ed found this lost empire? (laughs) (laughs) I
1: don't know about this.
0: (laughs) We'd be like this. (laughs) I'm drowning. now Do you have any alternate taglines for Atlantis: Colon, the Lost Empire?
1: Uh, yeah, obviously, Le- Leviathan, Le- Le- Leviathic,
0: can't buy a thi- fin
1: because he's so so big.
0: Because they built him, so
1: they bought right, they back. bought his fins. Jules Verne's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea dance is where Michael J. Fox is going. Um, so. Atlantis is a
0: Disney movie from two thousand one. They're trying to move Atlantis, away from Georgia? musicals. Yep. Hold Coca Cola. Are you just using the Futurama gag, Peter? We're doing a serious show, but serious people try to find serious underground civilization.
1: Is this a is this a Futurama gag?
0: Yeah. Did you watch Futurama where they um, Not really. the underwater city of Atlanta.
1: Hmm. They should have no. tried harder if I was able to come up with it. <laughs>
0: They did it in 2001, so it was fresh. Yeah. And also, you know, 9-11 really clouded everything. Um, yeah. Specifically Futurama plots.
1: Yeah, we needed to not only invade uh, it's all Afghanistan, cut out. we needed to invade yeah, Atlantis, Atlantis. The, the Lost Empire. So, Aaron the Lost team, Empire. Yeah, a plot recap on that.
0: Yeah, so uh, it stars Michael J. Fox as... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I only know him mainly from his return. His name's Milo, and uh, he is not getting the respect he's in, at this college that he's working at. He's like, has all these theories and these great ideas of how to find the lost civilization of, of Atlanta. He's been translating Atlantean language, and the rest of the professors, Peter, they think he's just a big old joke. What? Mainly because he's a Michael J. Fox, Nibish type. He's not really a Michael That'll J. Fox it. type, because Michael J. Fox, the whole thing with him is that he's fucking cooler than school. And but he, I don't know.
1: <laughs> we'll, I, we'll talk about Cassie in a sec. But I, I kind of d- like that they've they've grown the character to be super excited. Um, but like that excitement blinds him to other things. Like I, I kind of yeah. like that that character had that, that 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 Michael J. Fox type has has pushed him forward because like while I love like um, the Frighteners. The idea of like a jaded Michael J. Fox doesn't quite work for me. No,
0: I love the Frighteners too. He's so I, good in I love that the movie, but, but I don't think that, yeah. that works. Um, disagree. Uh, I think it works better in the Frighteners than it does here. But but anyway, uh,
1: just because it's a better movie doesn't mean <laughs> sorry go on. True. Uh, yeah. So he
0: uh, but but it happened like, and I want to talk about this. Everything happens so quickly in this fucking movie. It's ninety minutes long, which normally I would applaud. But uh, when I get into why I think, like, this movie and also why I think, like, animation from this movie doesn't work, I think it, like, codifies that you just don't – you don't have a sense to sink your teeth into anything. So he is almost immediately recruited by the captain of the submarine vessel that's saying, hey, we actually found the diary that you've been hypothesizing exists out in Antarctica, which is going to take us on this uh, expedition to the lost city of Atlantis. So they get on, like, you know, a Nautilus-type Jules Verne submarine which they're only on for, like, 10, 15 minutes. It's this crew of, like, Disney-type...
1: <laughs> it's it's so actually heavily in the marketing, and it's, like, for... It's You're right. It's in I computer.
0: was legitimately disappointed at how quickly they abandoned that shit. But, uh... So they they go on their, their mission. They immediately find this giant Leviathan and have to crash their ship to avoid it. They have all these other little fighter ships. The crew is also... Um, have you seen um fuck 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 i literally just rewatched it um it's a group of pirates that has all these like interesting characters that are led by james gardner this is our this is our second movie where james gardner becomes the secret bad guy at the end uh, with maverick pirates. peter um but uh what is that ghibli movie i'm thinking of um oh
1: um, oh i wouldn't i wouldn't know are you talking about um castle in the sky or something yes yes yeah it it
0: very like if it's not directly inspired by castle in the sky it would fucking shock me because it's it's like these groups like oh the this engineer who's like the youngest woman engineer ever and like this kind of like guy who's just a, a shithead there's the, a guy who's like the the munitions expert played by a uh, father sarducci or whatever from saturday night live who yes. is the only person who gets funny lines in in the movie but they all kind of treat him like shit, and he's trying to impress them. Uh, they land in this like underwater he's a typical cave. Pencil
1: neck. Everybody else he's is a, like a neck, tough yeah. sailor, and he's like yeah. the scientist. You know.
0: So they land. They 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 end up trying to like figure out how to to get out. They get they meet some weird human beings that are attacking them, and then like thirty minutes in, they're in the lost city of Atlantis. Um, They meet the king, played by Leonard Nimoy. And then Kida, who's the daughter of this uh, this, – the queen who disappeared in the opening sequence where Atlantis is – all of a sudden gets enveloped by water and the queen gets like resurrected uh, to child – well, to child Kida's cries. Uh, Then they barely – like so they don't know the language of Atlantis. So uh, uh, Milo and Kida – end up like becoming quick friends they then immediately decode it and figure out how to start operating some of this machinery and then james Gardner's like we're actually bad guys we're here to steal this power source and leave uh so in this like escape kita gets resurrected into like this they find this chamber of the heart of atlantis uh uh, which is typically in movies played by Anthony Hopkins but in this movie is played by a giant uh magnolia definitely inspired like chamber and like how much did the the heart of Atlantis remind you of um I'm this is the first time I'm saying it out loud uh, Ogre, no Ogren. Uh, uh who's the the seven who's the main antagonist in the hellboy series? oh adru jihad drew, yeah like that design of it felt very very magnolia which makes sense cuz he drew it so
1: yeah. <laughs> that that, that I'm, all checks out. and there's a there's a, yeah, there's an entrance to uh Atlantis that is literally just a a magnola head. He has a very distinct yeah. style of drawing um skulls, which by the way, did I tell you I'm getting a Hellboy tattoo in like a week? You, you,
0: yeah. No, not in a week. You told me you were you're planning to you have to send me which one you decide to do. But um but all the characters too, like resemble the sunken shoulders, especially like a big giant hands, that kind of thing. Um so uh, so Kida gets gets sucked up into this thing, and then James Gardner like puts puts her in the box, the heart of Atlantis in a box, and takes it. And then uh, Milo's like, or Milo's like, uh, we got to get it back. And then the rest of the pirates are like, this is wrong. And then there's a fight, uh, with with to get it back, and James Gardner. Gets possessed by it for a second and dies. And they find out, the heart of Atlantis, that's what happened. That's what sunk the city. That's where my mom went. And they free her. And then Milo stays and theoretically marries Keita And then everyone else is back telling, like, the old grandpa friend who sent him on the expedition, like, yeah, a couple people lost it. But, hey, we found it. It exists. It couldn't really bring much back from it. But here's some memories. Uh, and then the movie's over. And, Yeah. So I'm going to pause and I'm going to go with my whole theory of like why this movie sucks and why so many animated movies of this era suck. Now this movie looks great. Right. So uh, the Magnolia stuff transition translates really well. Extremely, it, it helps that I've been reading so many Hellboy books recently. But it was immediately like, oh, how inspired by his work is this? And then after I saw the movie and I did all the research, I was like, oh shit, like yeah, no, they were like, do Magnolia, please do a Disney vibe magnola and it it shows on screen and i I like that a lot of the design stuff is cool monsters the temples the passageways the 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 even the ships and the characters designs is all good
1: the character designs read great the characters themselves are very underdeveloped but the character designs read amazingly well like you see you see their 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 particular uh, uh figures and their sets of movements and you're like okay I know exactly what this character is, like, from a shot.
0: So I'm going to give, like, a grand unified theory that I think this movie codified for me, being able to see it with, like, fresh eyes for the first time in 2021, about why this movie is not so good and why animation from this era, as they tried to move away from, like, the Broadway-type musicals of the early 90s that Disney was putting out, why they failed and also why all these imitators that start coming out at the same time like you know it's 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 in this like late 90s early 2000s that you have DreamWorks who's doing like Prince of Egypt Road to El Dorado um, uh, you have Bluth and Fox Animation who's doing stuff like Titan A.E. And this then movie you have Disney is like a who,
1: direct corollary to Titan A.E. like they shared staff like that's how close they were.
0: Yeah and then you have like Disney, who's doing this, they're doing Treasure Planet, like, they're, they're all, like, tapping into this, this thing that essentially creates almost no successful movies. Uh, you know, there's some that are mild blockbusters, and there's some that I haven't seen, like, A Prince of Egypt that, like, I know has a lot of uh, general fans, but they're... From my perspective, all of these things are taking all the wrong lessons from the early Disney stuff. And on top of that, for the most of them, they're stripping away. One of the things that becomes very memorable for kids is that you're able to leave those. like If you, if you think of like that first 90s phase of Disney animation, late 80s, early 90s, you have literally some of the best songwriters of, like, musical numbers doing their music like hardcore ringers that we've talked about that did stuff like little of horrors and, and other things like that who are making these incredible catchy songs they're not overpowering to the movie they're like you know you have four or five songs per movie but it was hard as a kid who saw all those in theaters to not leave the theater singing hakuna matata or friend like me or you know be our guest or something like that it was something to you know get stuck in your head as a kid and then it helped that the movies themselves are obviously both richly animated and just you know they're telling fairy tale narratives and so they 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 have a very specific template to follow uh one thing that disney starts to do and they did this in their earlier stuff too they really you know and whether it was for toy you know to be toyified later on or something else is they populate their movies with these like side characters right that end up you know uh, becoming, like, their own they, – they don't really have developed personalities, but they are there to either sell toys or have memorable characters or whatever else it is. So, you know, I don't have to go through to say all the people as you want, think of Aladdin or the Lion King. Like, it's not like it's just Aladdin, Jasmine, the Sultan, and Jafar. You have Iago. You have Magic Carpet. You have Abu. You have Genie. You go to, you know, Lion King stuff like that. You have, like, Timon. You have Pumbaa. You have Zazu. You have Nala, like you have all these supporting characters that are there to uh, tell jokes, to, you know, create love interest, create, um, you know, push against it and kind of flesh out the kid movies. But the movies themselves are really focused on the main characters. Like there's never this idea of needing to give flounder equal screen time in. Um, in The Little Mermaid. Like, he's there to occasionally say something back to Ariel so she's not monologuing. The movie, though, for the most part, is laser-centered on Ariel. Same thing with Beauty and the Beast. Same thing with Aladdin. Same, you know, same thing with Lion King. Where it starts to go off the rails in a movie I recently rewatched is you kind of have, like, the hunchback of Notre Dame, who is telling, like, a story that deserves to be a little more pared down but they're still thinking like, okay, well, we need all these other characters because this is the template that works. And I think that template of needing all of these supporting characters that the will make the kids laugh and stuff like that starts becoming the main template that Disney and all these other animated studios start pulling f- from to vast detriment. And then on top of that, they try to pull out the songs as well. Or when they do songs, they're songs that obviously don't have – the same um, same st- powers like a Tim Rice or an Alan Menken or stuff like that who's doing all the all the music for it. So you end up with these movies like this where uh, M- Milo becomes very overpowered in his own movie. It is not Milo's in most of the scenes, but it, it really like Milo doesn't have a chance to get to know Kida because we're so focused on literally all these other side characters that are going on. And it's not so, a like, long even, movie. It's not a long movie. And neither is like Beauty and the Beast a Little Mermaid or, or or Aladdin or stuff like that. But it's focused enough that like Jasmine and Aladdin get enough moments and they know how to sell those moments that you'd you, you it can be quiet, it can be the two of them. Like it was really good at telling those stories of how fairy tale characters fall in love. So you still are bought into it. But like I know like Aladdin I know exactly what he's feeling, right? That movie and all those types of movies, Beauty and the Beast too. Like, they get their song, which is a typical Broadway thing—the I Want song, where they say what they want, what they're being left out on. You know their character motivation. It's not complicated, it's not original, but you're like, Belle is
1: underappreciated. It's, it's mournful, this it's happy, whatever it is, yeah. but it's letting yeah. you know what what piece is missing and what piece they're going to try and fill over the next few acts. It, Exactly, and then you meet
0: these characters that fill in those voids that they, the I want right, which you know, Belle is to be appreciated, Aladdin is to be respected and to not be treated like you know to, to be treated uh, not like a street rat and stuff like that. Um, you know, Simba to be able to um, to be the king without actually the responsibility of earning those things, like and it's simple stuff for kids to follow too. What is Milo's I Want? Like, not only do they not have the song that really is able to tell everything you need the character where they're just singing out, it's like he wants to find Atlantis or does he want to be respected, but also that's his grandfather's dream. Like, there's so fucking much in those 10 minutes where you're supposed to establish his character that, like, you get his... His I want is to find Atlantis, but you don't get any personal investment in the same way. And then all of a sudden the movie gets completely overpowered with secondary inside characters that are there to make laughs and stuff like that. And then by the time you meet the love interests, like they have like a moment where he's like, I can read. Oh, cool. We didn't know how to read that. It's like, why am I bought into this? Like, yeah, how does this fit into his "I want" uh, or anything like that? And it just it completely falls apart. And I, and I think you know, again, all these companies, including you know, late '90s, early 2000s, Disney's just completely misread the template, compl- and then started copying that without getting at the heart and soul of, as to. A, the, the, the character development thin as it was that was so critical to the success and then on top of that like i said all movies start becoming this for happy meal toils or something like that disney in the 40s and 50s and 60s like it's easy to go oh yeah they were doing fairytale movies because you think of snow white and you think of cinderella and you think of sleeping beauty yeah they were doing that but also they were doing fantasia and bambi and Pinocchio, and, you know, weirder stuff, like, the you know, the three Caballeros, and the adventures of Ichabod and Crane. like, some of the some of the, and Alice in Wonderland, which sometimes gets lumped into that, but is absolutely not a princess story, like, they were not saying that we just need to follow this template with, like, hero, uh, romantic interest, uh, tons of side characters, more than you can shake your stick at, like, stuff like that, like, a villain who gets exposed, and so, like, that idea of repeating uh, Disney's golden age or so, you know, whatever age that is. I don't, I don't follow Disney age's success was just completely missed by the fact that like um, not that, that temp- that template that everyone thinks Disney established and then was repeating didn't exist in the forties and fifties and sixties. They were just kind of following the stories that they wanted to tell or they thought would be interesting to animate. And so when you look back on, on animation in this time frame. The stuff that really stands the test of time is the stuff that breaks away from it. Like you have Emperor's New Groove, which has a very slimmed down character roster and becomes very self-referential and funny and stuff like that. Worth noting that um, Emperor's New Groove was supposed to be another one of these Atlantis Sinbad type movies – Where it was going to be called the Empire of the Sun and really like dig deep into this, like, you know, the South American empire and be a drama. And then it just wasn't working and they scrapped it and they made this very funny anime comedy or like a Lilo and Stitch, which is just like the power of friendship with an alien. Um, Those are the ones that ultimately end up still being good because they weren't trying to do this uh, repeatable formula. Uh, that, that by its nature is there to stretch the story to its, its limits so that nothing sticks, like nothing is able to stick because it is, is really feels like, and I'm sure this is, I I don't mean this is a slight on all the people that spent literally years of their lives working on all these movies, but it, it is the, it is the movie equivalent of going through the motions. Like we have to produce one of these every fucking year. What's the template? And then we just keep them going and stuff like that. And the one thing that this did that is interesting again is to take a visual cue from an artist who had a very interesting designs.
1: I I actually have a pretty uh, a pretty good follow up to that, um, or at least a, a, I guess a a pretty fitting follow up to that. And that's, that's that this yes, the central problem with this movie is Milo. Uh, I actually am fine with uh, Michael J. Fox's performance. I think he adds a bit of humanity to it, and like. You know, it's like a char- it's like seeing a character actor like an M-M at Walsh you already like. You're like, "All right, like I'm a- I'm a little bit more on this bus." Yeah,
0: Michael J. Fox like I'm not complaining about Michael J. Yes. Fox. I just think like nothing here works. So, so he this, doesn't work either.
1: I think the movie uh, as a adventure movie or whatever works okay. Like Um, it's it it it, some of the action sequences are fun, uh the characters are well drawn, the animation is pretty to look at more or less. It, It it doesn't give me a sense of place because it doesn't give me a sense of character. Uh you know, Leonard Nimoy doing the Atlantean language and being like the old figure, like that gives me a sense of place, and that's like a static shot because Leonard Nimoy is like a clean character, he's also an archetype. The problem is our main character, I don't know who he is, and that's because this comes back to something that is like a big, uh, uh, I think a big uh, theme of our times, which is like, are you passing on colonialism to the next generation? And this is a movie that doesn't underst- that, that, that actually tries to contend and wrap around with uh, how much of colonialism is embedded in adventurism and in the adventure genre, because it purposefully takes place in 1914. It's supposed to be this era, this like Jules Verne era of, you know, pre-World War I when we could see just the the sheer inhumanity to man we could commit. Um, It's supposed to be uh, in this era of kind of, um, (laughs) it's not quite Indiana Jones, but this era of like adventurism that like uh, there's still a lot of the world left to explore, but this like colonialist kind of stuff is like appealing on a level, and I think I kind of figured out some of it because like there's these crunchy mechanical equipment, like these guys in gas masks and these bolt action rifles and these big chunky tanks like that stuff is really like appealing aesthetically, and like these grand adventures in alien lands, like what little kid didn't think of like every part of their town as like an adventure to go on right? Um, and, and the idea of getting great treasures. The idea that like, you know, my dad works in an office or whatever, like whatever concept of work you have, um, it could be usurped by if I just find this one magic ruby, this one piece of art. <laughs> um yeah. and uh, you know, when you get older, there's this concept of like, you know, the the dress of the era is very appealing, flapper skirts and these like khaki khaki outfits and that eventually leads to steampunk but i don't want to go down that road um but the point is that like these ideas are very appealing to kids there's a reason that like indiana jones is um is very appealing to kids and it's because this era of adventurism is very appealing to kids and the movie seems to want to say all right we're loading up a big fucking sub we've got all the tech we've got all this equipment all this western bullshit i've got an army backed behind us let's go take on uh the world let's go explore the world and take what's ours and the movie has a didactic shift where there's um the 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 colonel played by James Garner and then there's uh the you know Milo who's like the scientist uh linguist um you know they don't use the term anthropologist but it seems like he's essentially an anthropologist or an archaeologist and um his, his interest it and the colonel's are aligned for like ninety percent of the movie, I'm not exaggerating. They want to find the power source. They want to bring it back, and they want to bring it back into the British Museum system. Yeah, <laughs> they want to bring it back to to society so that it can be uh, it can be served. And it feels like this is a movie that's refuting the Indiana Jones. It belongs in a museum. Shit, <laughs> and it's yeah. actually doing that in the last like five to ten percent of the movie. But there's no transition point between the two. Milo is just a colonialist who finds a hot girl. And then he Mm -hmm. says, well, you're really hot. So I guess colonialism is bad, which is the same fucking problem with Avatar. (laughs) We're like Avatar. It's like, I love the idea (laughs) of smashing the colonialist pigs, these, you know, these, uh, you know, whatever, these space marine-space dash mercs that are, uh, you know, um, essentially like India India East Trading Company scabs. They want to come in and take over and commit genocide against a native peoples. Um, It's pulling from the same sort of tradition. Like, let's take a sci-fi twist to... Uh, The fact that colonialism has a deep, dark history, and we're actually going to be talking about James Cameron later in this episode um, for a funny little story. So I'll get there. Um, But but my whole point here is that, like, I get what you're saying. I agree with you, and the problem is that the movie both wants to enjoy colonialist aesthetic and exploration, and this idea of of seeking out, uh, you know, great treasures and bringing them back home, and then it never quite transitions from there to its anti-colonialist aspirations that it gets to in the last five minutes. Which, and the reason it doesn't get there is because it never develops Milo to get there. Milo's just like hot woman; she's my girlfriend. I got to defend her people.
0: Yeah. And, you know, on that same point, like, it really hits that home with the colonialism because, like, you know, fucking Milo gets to Atlantis. And he tells all the indigenous people all of Atlantis how their language works, how their machine works. Like, he literally is white savior, like, embodied, right? Like,
1: I am a learned man. And, and nobody calls you. him out on it either. No. It's no. kind of like he just kind of flips a switch.
0: Yeah, where he's like that. I will also say the other reason, and this is purely aesthetic, um, Milo spends the whole movie in a in a tank top, and it is um here, here's the thing about my wall designs. They are not portraying leading man, even Bookish Anebis. They're, like, the whole design is, like, we talked about, like, slump shoulders, large hands, like, the weight of existence is bearing down, which is not necessarily good for your Disney hero movie, necessarily, especially your Disney hero character, especially, like, the way to really emphasize the fact that, like, he looks... Awkward and weird in a world that doesn't want him. Is to put him in a place that uh, that really draws attention to that design choice of slumped shoulders, which would be a tank top, right? Like you can't even hide it with a color or something like that. Like it is um an off-putting aesthetic decision, I think, from a costuming perspective, which may work better if you're supposed to see him as, uh, you know, beaten by the world and uh hello. i don't know like it doesn't did you did, i i don't know why there was parts of it that just felt deeply uncomfortable to me to see him like that constantly especially I'm like
1: as, i don't know but like was it is that just me were you watching this like I, I like the idea of the put on a being shirt, this dude. like skinny skinny uh you know little waifish guy who gets by off of um uniting people and having uh, an inspirational speech and I loved the idea of him not, him not him not overpowering, yeah. the, you know Colonel Surge or whatever the fuck his name is, um, not overpowering him. It's the idea that he uses his his intellect and he uses his humanity to overpower him. Like I like that as a theme, but like yeah, like the the design doesn't read to me as like that design never flips. Like it reads to me as like he's like the scientist of the crew, whatever. But, like, it, it never becomes. Because that's the thing about that's sexy about Indiana Jones, is because he's a doctorate that also has, like, clearly lifts weights. Like, <laughs> he's yeah, and he's, he's, he's not like Schwarzenegger, enough. right? He's still like a Harrison Ford type, which is like. And, and Harrison Ford is like a guy who's like, he can lug, like, wood around, but he's yeah. not going to lift your car above your head.
0: No. Like, he can't handle himself in a fight because he's, like, struggled with a musk somewhere. <laughs> You know, at some point, but like he's uh, yeah, but even they like they like Indiana Jones isn't walking around in just a fucking tank top, right? Like, he's, he's yeah, he's they give him a leather jacket and a hat, like, sometime or like a suit and some glasses and a bow That's tie. The thing it,
1: it revels in so much colonialist aesthetic, it's kind of interesting that they negate that for Milo and they just leave him a nerd. And also, like, Milo reads really well, but, like, that look with that specific haircut, it's just, like, it, it it screams just, like, a 90s boy band haircut to me. It doesn't scream, like, you know, 1920s adventurism meets bookworm. Like, that doesn't... Uh, yeah,
0: and also, it, right now, it screams a little bit more Proud Boys than I like. Maybe
1: that wasn't hurting me a little. He does have, you know, some, you know, the, the proud, the proud boys aesthetic does uh, a little bit of a throwback quality to. an Yeah.
0: I mean, I get it, but uh, it's also uh, all
1: all those guys have been inside for a year. So I'm pretty sure the shaved head thing doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I, I read with you. He, his character, I think most of the characters read really well and there's too many characters, too many characters that don't, I think too many characters that don't have any characterization.
0: No, um, but they just, like I well. said, they're doing the Castle in the Sky thing, but the Castle in the Sky thing, they're more ancillary, right? And, like, they don't serve all these different plot points of, like, oh, all of them are separately being mean, and then they're being mean as a group, and then all of a sudden, one day, they feel a little sorry for...
1: Like, there is, You can't have the all-aboard sequence, where you meet, like, 20 characters at once, and then have none of these characters matter.
0: <laughs> no, and, like, the problem is, like I said, because they're they're hitting all these, like... You know, it's the template beats that they need to hit. Like, you know, you don't buy the romance. I also don't buy why all these people turned against.
1: No, especially I said no. that about the, um, the older secretary woman. Yeah. Like, she's clearly like a company. She's a dead eyed company stooge. Like, why would she suddenly have a change of heart? Like, she doesn't even have a funny joke. Like, that's the thing about this movie. You can get rid of the songs. I'm, I'm great with that. Like a big adventurism oh, movie about for kids that doesn't have songs in it. Like, you know, that that is that they is, could like, what are you talking about? They could have reused
0: under the sea.
1: It's right there.
0: <laughs> owned by the same company.
1: Um and New uh to same same uh was to say same directors for Beauty and the Beast, so they could have stolen, you know, um be any, Our guest. Yeah, be right? our guest. They're, they're their guest. Um also like are you not gonna sit on the Leonard Nimoy speaking Atlantean
0: but, yes. Leonard Nimoy was in so many of these... I mean, Leonard is in the fucking uh, Transformers movie, right?
1: But he... Uh, the, the guy who made the Atlantean language... Oh, yeah. ...Klingon.
0: That, yeah, I uh, Mark... I think his name's Mark Koenig. Yeah, they, they like, w- wanted a real language, so they hired the guy that made up Klingon. <laughs> or <laughs> he actually... Yeah, they did the, the Klingon dictionary to, like, do some level of linguistics.
1: It actually is kind of cute because it it's um cute. it doesn't read it reads left to right and then right to left depend like you know going down the lines as if it's water flowing it's kind of cute. Anyways, um, anyway, is the the, the point here? They took
0: a that, lot of it seriously. It just doesn't come together.
1: Yeah, the point is here that so much of this stuff is is about aesthetic and look and feel, and it's not actually about um immersing yourselves in a character and. Uh, when you're gonna um have the entire movie about a um underdog he's an underdog he 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 actually has milo has an amazing intro where he's telling us all about the theories of atlantis and this plato script and all of his theories on where atlantis is and he does this ireland iceland joke like he's basically doing a speech and then the movie turns around and he's giving the speech to a bunch of like dolls and mop heads and stuff because he's practicing his speech and like that's a super endearing cute underdog kind of character detail the problem is um that is the last time that i felt emotionally attached to milo yeah except for late in the movie as a cipher to murder all the marines I want it late in the movie, I was, it's, it's actually, it's getting weirdly closer to Avatar. These, they, they get on these flying stone machines. I mean, they're not dragons, but they get on these flying stone machines to go kill all the Marines who are trying to steal the unobtainium, excuse me, the blue gem stuff um, from them. And uh, my, that, then that character, you know, Sam Worthington character, the Milo character um, becomes a cypher where I'm like, I don't really care about you. I care about all these marine assholes getting blown out of the sky. And, like, that's... It counts, mind you. Like, it does count. If you yeah. get me excited enough in the people and the characters that, like, I want the bad guys to lose, like, that, that, that those points are there. <laughs> but everything between the first act and the last act, I'm just, like, marveling at the art. Which is, like, give me an Atlantis The Lost Empire art book. The way there's there's like a Jodorowski's Dune art book. Yeah. And I'm just as happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it just it never it just never never fits into anything and like I like I said, there's nothing nothing sticks. Like I don't know why everyone's so mean like if that's the thing is like if they don't give a shit about this guy and they're using him, why is the entire crew being an asshole to him? It makes no sense. They know what the jig is. Like they they want him to be on their side to do it like put and then the idea at no point like it doesn't have that moment that movies are supposed to have where milo does something selfless for one of them or even they're being a even though they're being dicks and then everyone you know everyone goes shit maybe being a nice guy is something we should consider more of like that's not a complicated beat but these movies don't have to have that but you need some motivation to hang on and that's why like you know Watching some of these movies, even in my, um, you know, as they started to – Disney movies started turning this. I saw Titan A.E. in theaters, which was I think was the year before this. Everything just seemed so thin in a way that at the time made me think that I had outgrown these types of movies, right? Because like when I saw Beauty and the Beast, when I saw Lion King, when I saw – All these other animated movies in the late 80s and, uh, you know, Land Before Time, whatever it was. I walked away from those, like feeling obsessed and the connection and stuff like that. And then when I went and saw stuff like this, obviously didn't see this, but stuff like this. And I no longer felt in any way connected to the movie and everything just kind of passed through me and all these beats like just didn't hit. I wasn't, like, mature enough in my understanding of, like, film and character beats and story beats and stuff like that to think, like, oh, they just – this isn't a good movie. I started to think, like, these movies just aren't made for me anymore, right? Like, this type of animation, these types of Disney movies uh, that I should love, like a Titan AE, a fucking awesome space adventure, just doesn't connect with me anymore, and – you know, I went back, I didn't see, uh, for the same reason I didn't see this, I didn't see Lilo and Stitch and Emperor's New Groove when they first came out. I came back to those in, like, late college as friends recommended them and really loved them. But, um, you know, I never came back to stuff like this, and so I never had the chance to, like, process any of these. Like, I never even, I never even went back and, like, Prince of Egypt is actually something, like, friend of the show Carrie Nelson talks about uh, as a really good movie. I'm interested in going back and revisiting that based on her and some other dissolvers' Uh, recommendations but like i just realized like i really mistook these types of movies as me being over animation or too grown up for it and when actually i was just like i was seeing bad movies and not quite realizing that like the the differences that was causing a beauty and the beast for me to be something i loved whereas a atlantis or a you know whatever hunchback Valm wasn't hitting me so um
1: yeah and like i i I you know uh speaking of character stuff like this movie features an actor I love quite a bit in in, in um one of his last two posthumous roles Jim varney plays oh, God, a, no, I
0: thought we were gonna get
1: out of it. a bumpkin redneck gold prospector kind of character and it's just a look Jim Varney is really overcast for the role like Jim varney is like a really gifted character actor he's also very gifted as like a <laughs> He's also very gifted as like Slinky in the Toy Story movies. Like he, he, he um, they, they could have given this character a lot of hay, but like that just shows you how little space they had yeah. for for the rest of this. And like it,
0: it there's... does, it does stick, it does really continue my theory and prove me correct from last month that i talked about beverly hillbillies that outside of the toy story movies jim Varney's never been in a good movie so i i do appreciate this movie for feeding into my uh patently correct thesis yeah
1: and this movie is it's good to know this movie is uh before we kind of move on to the next thing this movie is uh a piece of like cinema history similar to tight knee where like this was where we had actual Blood and guts animation happening, like people throwing themselves on actual art on two D animation. Yeah, and ble- but this was like a transitional thing where it started yeah. to blend in with three D animation, and three D animation made certain shots incredibly complicated. And these made made these animators just have to like work and work and work there's a final shot in this movie of atlantis finally saved and there's these big stone golems that are just literally just magnola designs like they're just 100% magnola designs um and atlantis is saved and there's all these these buzzing flying cars around and it looks gorgeous and it's so cool looking and you apparently this was like the most complicated visual (laughs) effect that had ever been done in animation before and like to me the fact that this came out not that long apart from shrek is very telling where shrek while you know cgi animation is not easy this still gives me a sense of thrumming heart this still yeah. gives me a sense of of a uh, 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 of artist interpretation the dreamworks era that we're about to kick off from shrek forward gives me absolutely none of that i have no affinity for uh like, the Shark Tale, um, over-the-hedge Shrek era of DreamWorks animation for, like, basically a decade? When when did the the Dragon movies come out? Is that 2009?
0: Uh, yeah, I think 2009 is the first. Those are good.
1: Almost a a decade before I'm feeling any sense of heart, any sense of artistry out of the DreamWorks.
0: Well, what's interesting is that you essentially have this template, which is on its last legs, and not doing well replaced by the shrek template which comes out the same year right like we do movie references and we do pop culture like they turn into the fucking you know disaster epic movie scary movie uh and then they have these like uh you know uh, smart streetwise characters or whatever else so yeah like this era ends Around this time, obviously, there's still movies in production, so you have, like, Treasure Planet, which I think comes out the next year, and you have a, st- a couple of DreamWorks ones that are holding on, and then Shrek comes out, and everyone's like, more Shrek, and so, like, Shrek then destroys the next <laughs> 10 years of animation, and you really have, like, Pixar as both a light in the darkness, but then also, you know, I, I think if you accept Pixar, I think 2000 to 2010 is one of, like, the worst decades of animated movies like pound per pound like there's so much garbage because uh they're they're either trailing off into this template which goes away or they start imbibing the the shrek template and it's really like you know when uh it's it's really not the late 2000s when kind of uh uh, Disney Animation figures out that, like, why are we trying to do Shrek rip Um Maybe we should do what Disney Animation's good at. And they start doing stuff like, you know, fucking uh, the Winnie the Pooh movie and Tangled and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, Pixar starts really cranking up with stuff like Up and Wally and Toy Story 3 and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I... It, it it's funny like this. This is the end of an era, and also weirdly the birth of a worse era in in animation. And I am glad like this is the this is the third, fourth, th- fourth animated movie that we've done. Um, and we it's kind of weird that like <laughs> we've done Fantastic Planet, uh, The Black Cauldron, Inside Out, and um, and Atlantis: The Lost Empire. So very weird. Picks. Uh, there's so many good animated movies. At some point, we're gonna have to cover them. Uh, we have not necessarily done that successfully. But Peter, let's move on to Mimic. This leads us to Mimic. We already kind of laid the groundwork for how Del Toro ended up making this. I will say before Peter, you do a quick uh, plot recap. This is the this is the one I had seen, and I was mildly interested in revisiting it only because. Uh, about uh, eight years ago, director's cut came out. Um, Del Toro famously has said that like, and we'll talk a little bit about that, that his movie got cut to shit. He wasn't able to do a lot of things and was always kind of frustrated with the way he it was received and that generally like, the, the, it's not like there's a movie that he feels more affinity <laughs> for than the other. He talked about like, Hellboy is just as important to me as Shape of Water and, Pacific Rim is just as important to me as um, as Pan's Labyrinth and stuff like that. Um, and so he always felt like he wanted another chance at this, and it was really nice for them to for him to a to be able to get another shot to to put some scenes together a little bit differently, but also maybe most importantly, do the work to kind of do a full like HD upgrade to it. So uh, I was mildly curious. I'm glad I got the chance to revisit it for the show, though, because I did see this in 1997. And did not have fond memories of it. This is the era of the $30 million uh, monster movie uh, that almost none of them were successful from my memory. Like, I saw this uh, deep rising... Or I didn't see all of deep rising. um, uh, 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 The Relic, uh, Virus, like these kind of R-rated, kind of not necessarily... Kind of like not quite A-list stars, but not quite B-list stars either. Filled casts and stuff like that. And I just remember none of them being all that good, or at least what I was really hoping for, which maybe I was hoping for like Jurassic Park level special effects in like these other monster things. Uh, but I'm so glad I got a chance to revisit this one because not only does it look gorgeous, which probably is just improved my viewing of it by not watching. Like this movie takes place almost entirely underground. And VHS was not good to dimly lit cinematography, let alone watching <laughs> yeah. this on a 13 inch TV, uh, which went
1: like I, or 19. I, I remember TV this movie looking basement. like absolutely nothing when I watched it at home.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I I like have a memory of of not much, and here it's very like the gore is very detailed. It looks great, but also like I just have in general in my life have a more appreciation for just a gory, gross, grimy go- monster horror movie and like my i really had a lot of fun with this um and it really you know and again i don't remember it well enough to know the changes i looked at a director's cut to original version website to try to get a sense and their kind of theory was like yeah there's some minor things that are different but there's nothing here that like really changes it dramatically it not, is what
1: it is. Yeah. It's just a little bit of a, a, a of a meaner beast. It's it's not um it's not a, a drastically different thing. There's no real like alternative takes. They removed all it sounds like uh Del Toro removed as much of the second unit stuff as he could. There's rumors mostly confirmed that Robert Rodriguez was brought in because he was a Miramax dash dimension uh buddy to the Weinsteins at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, which I don't say that to cast aspersions on on Barbara Rodriguez. Um, like Tarantino and lots of Mar Marisarvino in this movie who was uh almost sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein was like a big Miramax dimension person. Like there were a lot of people that got kind of like drawn into the circle because Harvey and Bob were so powerful. Um Yeah, which but...
0: also speaks to the fact that like you if you wanted to work you couldn't get away from them and the people that wanted to get away from them a lot of times they made sure it didn't work again
1: yes exactly and um marissa Mara Servino, like basically like this is she she made a mighty aphrodite and shortly after harvey started aggressively trying to hurt her um aggressively trying to um assault her and um still she Ended up working with him, because this stuff is complicated. This stuff is which, st- yeah, which sticky again, and gross. Yeah, which again,
0: underlining, this does not, like, the, too many uh, bad faith assholes use that as a defense for, like, how bad could it have been? It's like, well, it's not so much how bad could it have been, it's like, uh, how much control do these fucking rapists have over people's livelihoods and careers? So that people constantly had to make decisions based on the fact that, like, there wasn't an opportunity to say... No, sir. Uh I'm an Aaron Sorkin character and you have done a bad thing to jail
1: with you. Yeah. Scorn
0: him, community.
1: <laughs> and it's it, it's it's true. And it's also well, like but, well, Peter,
0: I just gotta jump in to say it. I just made that up. That was not lifted directly from an Aaron Sorkin script, but I can see where you would think it would be.
1: Uh it sounds exactly like a newsroom episode from like season three. I know. I just made it up, is what I'm saying. Wow. Have you considered writing for the show the news doing a show that's basically if you got to write scripts for the newsroom, but with twenty twenty vision. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, also, it's all three years. I watched the first episode of Newsroom, and I remember they're like breaking the story of the whatever that fucking oil pipeline leak was. Like
1: three years later. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a fucking terrible show. Yeah, miserable shit. Anyways, um, my point here is that um, these figures were very much up. Uh, powerful uh massive um beasts in their industry and they're able to bully people left and right um in whatever way um served their needs so you know harvey um uh had a need to hurt women and he pursued maria servino and you know when that didn't work out she still got to keep her career because she for whatever reason didn't reach his wrath um his full wrath and uh then um wasn't says guillermo del toro um he was uh brought in wined dined kept as like a like a we're so excited to bring you to america hollywood and america are gonna love you we're so excited to to share you with america uh and then the day that um you actually have to start shooting and playing with their money they turn into fucking monsters and like transitioning away from harvey more into the bob side of the camp um bob ran dimension which was sort of Miramax's uh genre, genre yeah. uh largely horror but their genre brand and mirror and dimension was infamous for abusing uh soon to be or already existing horror uh royalty like West Cra- the reason that we don't have a lot of great late era Wes Craven movies is entirely because Dimension fucked with Wes Craven to the point that he like basically didn't want to make movies anymore. Yeah. Like, if you want to know why Wes Craven didn't get his like last hurrah to say fuck you to everybody and be like, here's my my last spooky scary movie, and he just had a bunch of like I sold my soul to take style shitty movies, blame Dimension and the fact that they beat on a 60 year old man a 70 year old man
0: yeah and i think also like one of the things that i don't think like the kevin smiths and the tarantinos and the Rodriguezes thought they were doing at the time is that like miramax did a really good job of painting itself as this like home for uh these these talented directors to make their movies and so like you know, they would really put the Tarantinos and the Kevin Smiths and stuff like that out in front as, like, they give us their money and they let me do what I wanted. Like, there's a freedom to do these things. And, like, they were, like, the problem is, is I don't think they necessarily realized it. um, Tarantino's actually had some things to say about how little he realized it, which uh, probably a lot of shame on him and Tarantino has his own things. But, um... The uh, they're, they're like almost like the Scientology the Tom Cruise what Tom Cruise is the Scientology right like they put Tom Cruise out there as this this uh, and these like Scientology ambassadors is like the shows like how great Scientology can be and then you read the books and you find out like people fucking working in basements scrubbing every day for five years because that's what like Tom you know these, these church leaders are telling them to do. And how aware the Tom Cruise's and the Kelly Preston's and the, you know, um, Christy Allies are of those people who fucking knows. But, like, it, it's like a similar vibe. Like, when you hear these horror stories of Dementia and Miramax of these talented directors who got to make movies there, you you would think from the stories that the Tarantinos of the world share, like, they, they're going to get to kind of take their money and make these movies that the other, you know, older studios aren't letting people make when instead they're fucking – literally harassing everyone and everyone and destroying movies and threatening people and obviously a lot of the sick shit has been documented but like as you dig deeper it's sicker and sicker. What was the movie that we were uh, talking about Peter where like it seemed like it had no like the the, the person the the person like missed the premiere because their dad died and Harvey Weinstein like called the threat oh
1: Oh, 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 um... It it's was like 10 Freddy Things Prince I Hate Jr. About You, right? Or something? It was Freddie Prinze Jr. Oh, She's so All That, she's yeah. She's All That.
0: Oh, the anniversary of his dad, Seth. But, like, the amount of, like, insane stuff that probably is still to be found. And, like, they, yeah, they ran a movie studio. People worked for him. Like, people kept working for him because, well, like, who else, you know, uh, they're giving Del Toro, they're giving these actors a chance to star in these movies, and then, like f- destroying most of them like the amount of movies that they probably just went out of their way to destroy f- through spite or through pride is is insane. and this is one that del Toro talks about like, yeah, I was uh I mean i I think we can do a really quick plot recap, Peter like oh yeah, uh there's a there's a there's a a, a plague that's attacking children specifically that's caused by cockroaches. Uh, Mira Savina is a scientist with the CDC who genetically modifies some cockroaches to basically kill all the, blo- the cockroaches spreading the plague, called the Lazarus cockroach. They cure the plague, cut to three years later. There's all these weird deaths, and people are finding bigger cockroaches. And they found out that all the mutation stuff that they put into these cockroaches caused them to grow lungs and grow exponentially larger. Um, and to the point that they used camo- – like they're like, why haven't we been seeing these? Their camouflage is that they can disguise themselves there- to look like people. Um, and so then the back hour of this movie is them stuck in the subway system as they uh, – you know, classic monster movie thing. Some people die. Some people survive. They fight them off. At the end, Mary Savino's uh, character and her husband, Peter, survive.
1: Yes. And that wasn't the original ending. Um, so that's, that's, uh, you know, a pretty classic tale in Hollywood of, uh, they, 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 I had a rough ending and they wanted to come in and make it a happy ending, but that happened here. Uh, in the script, it was that, uh, the bugs completely win. Um, the bugs bugs have completely gone into mimic mankind. Um, to the point that uh they can um copy our language. Uh and then uh they eventually shot a version of that that was like cut back which was well the bugs have now infiltrated, you know, human society and they're they're still out there. We need to worry about them. Um and then the the version they ended up with was we killed all the bugs that mattered. They can't make any more bugs. They're just going to die down there in the subways. That's fine. We're good. We blew them up with a big explosion. No one important had to die. Like happy ending. Everybody hugs. And what's most interesting about this is you read the like Del Toro has gotten more and more, especially like once he got to do the director's cut. um, He's gotten more and more vocal about how much the Weinsteins fucked with him. Yeah. And so he's like, yes, they didn't let me film my ideal ending, but you know, it's pretty dark. That's a story that everybody tells. My end my my super dark ending didn't get to get filmed. Every horror director has a story like that, right? Um but also they uh apparently were like horrifically homophobic and, and uh racist, where he was fighting really hard to cast Andre Brower because apparently he was the best audition for uh the lead Peter Mann, um, which I have to we have to just if we don't have time, but like it is. Yeah, I, like I said, I
0: I sent this to you in text, and it is in my notes that I really empathized with Mira Savina's character because she spends most of the movie yelling things like uh, "No, Peter, don't do this," uh, yeah. and I I understood I understood that like at a gut level. <laughs>
1: You're my, you're my Myra Servino to uh, my Peter. Peter,
0: fan. don't do the like. To be clear, Peter's a good guy, um, who just just keeps doing things that just seem reckless, uh, poorly inspired, stupid. Really? Oh um, yeah. Um.
1: But I I speared a bunch of uh, bug guts on myself, which I think makes me invul- invulnerable. That is yeah. one pretty literal translation from that character to me is that i like most of the editing myself
0: yeah most of the editing of our podcast that you guys don't hear is just while peter's making a point is me on the other audio track saying stuff like peter don't say that no (laughs) i mean it all gets silenced just to have a cohesive product you know gotta release that content but it's all it's all there in the raw cuts. Right I short. am a
1: white man, and I will not be silenced. Joe Rogan told me.
0: <laughs> it's like two months old at this point. But yeah, yes. I mean, they're, look, if you even hear this, I'd be surprised. Because as we all know, the most censored people in America are straight white cis people. <laughs> and I don't know if you're going to hear our thoughts about Mimic in Atlantis. I don't know. I don't know if they're you coming don't. for us. Yeah.
1: So, um... Uh, apparently, uh, Andre Brouwer had a great audition and Guillermo del Toro fought hard for him because he loved the idea of Mara Servino, um, this small boy who was, you know, is ostensibly Hispanic in the movie. He's not actually, um, but, uh, and then, um, Andre Brouwer, who would be a black man, this idea of like, okay, if we're going to go with this happy ending with cockroaches, he originally wanted Beatles. Um, we're going to have an ending where I want to get to this point at the end where we all realize like, this is, this is America pushing through, this is a multicultural version of America pushing through. I I don't care about a bunch of white people. And eventually casting progressed and it was like, oh, well, this little kid isn't like quite Hispanic. Now he's just autistic. Maybe on the autism spectrum, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I don't and then oh well um we can't have a black man and a white woman dating in one of these movies america is not ready for that oh also josh brolin's character was supposed to be gay and that like filtered into like plot mechanics um and apparently that was edited out which you know at the end of the day like that's less of a loss than andre Brower being cast as the lead um because josh brolin's character in the final cut is mostly just like Chum for the, the yeah. Term, I mean, it's
0: right? nice to see like young scuzzy Josh Brolin.
1: Yeah, and but Andre Brower as oh, yeah. the lead have would have been that. such uh, a fucking improvement Broward's because he's he's such a charming, thoughtful actor, and like the guy that they got for uh, Peter is such a dud in this movie. Like he is he is uh, glasses, handsome face McGee. That's that is it
0: yeah uh yeah and like like most peters he went on to no other career
1: thanks whatsoever. for highlighting this awful not the actor awful. i'm talking about like the peter in
0: this movie peter had a successful career why would he go on to another one he was like one of the directors of the cbc
1: yeah i mean i mean as a compliment
0: like he found his niche being maybe one of the most powerful people when it came to infectious disease (laughs) i I don't like this movie is so funny about like he is on tv announcing they've cured the epidemic and like and then he spends most of the movie investigating old sewer lines (laughs) Like he is do you have a staff i don't know just throwing out
1: ideas yeah but he marries one of his subordinates which means um you know he has to do whatever he wants at yeah, that, that point.
0: was a that was a plot specifically that weinstein's like
1: put it in but <laughs> god I can't uh, um, yeah but, but like here's some stuff from this movie before we get, we move on like here's some stuff from actually no let me let me save this for later um, but yeah, you're, you're so right. Like there's there, the, the, the whole mechanics of these doctors as characters doesn't quite make sense. The, the fact that like the, what their roles are doesn't quite make sense. It, it, the, the fact that it, it, it all basically comes down to a, um, a, a very old school 1950s monster movie and yeah. movie kind of plot, which is, uh, man shouldn't fuck with nature but it's modernized in a way that, like, is very poignant and thoughtful, which is like, well, what if we have a direct problem? There's a disease being spread by this particular species. Yeah, they're not we're... playing
0: God. They're trying to save lives. Children's yes, lives, this, right? This like, like, it's specifically... Not that... a fa- it's like it's like the opposite of coronavirus. Like, it yeah. specifically is infecting children.
1: They're not inventing uh, the world's best big dick drugs. They're trying to save the lives of children. That would also children. save lives. Um... <laughs> I think if more men were confident in their penis size. Yeah. 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 I, that would probably yeah, that would
0: probably save a lot of lives now that we're talking about it. Uh, yeah. I And that's the thing. Like, some of the reviews were like, this is stupid. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a 19. This, this is not like the whole thing when they're like, they grew lungs. Like, I can see like, ah, oh, they grew lungs. Jesus. How dumb. Yeah, it is dumb. It's about giant cockroaches that disguise themselves as people. Like. You you're supposed to have somewhat fun with the concept, as opposed to being like, well, this is like, can you imagine cinema sins on this movie their, their fucking ding machine would break? But it's like you're missing the point, and that's something that Del Toro I think understands. As like he's he's made no secret of how much he loves '50s monster movies, and like there are moments of this movie besides like the cool gross gore stuff that legitimately creep me out, not make me jump, but. The, the human the human faces are – I remember even in when I saw this in 1997, thinking of two clever touches that I enjoyed. Like the idea of this like exoskeleton that folds back to create like human camouflage much like, again, uh, uh, insects do all around the animal world as they point out in this movie. And there's that scene where she just sees this silhouette of a human alone on the train that like le- – legitimately creeps me out i remember that from that's like one of the only moments of this movie that i remember from 24 years ago just because it's so fucking creepy
1: yeah yeah um so this movie has a cgi monster problem i think um an old cgi like this is pretty unfortunate and there's a some of the issues here were caused by um also producer meddling where they just kept coming in and be like we don't like this we don't like this we don't like this and like it started out as like beetles and then eventually they were like uh no cockroach somebody in a producer meeting said no we want cockroaches because new york has a lot of cockroaches and they were, and then and Del then, Toro then Del Toro was, was like
0: but these guys are bigger than jesus
1: these guys are bigger than jesus well jesus was probably only like five six he was probably a short king oh i meant short king yeah, of kings i meant because they're beetles yeah. Yeah. But also Jesus himself was probably shorter than the tall men in this movie, right? Oh yeah. John. I don't know what the average I don't know what the average height was in. It's probably like five, six, five, seven, in, right? in the year zero. Yeah.
0: He was probably nine feet tall.
1: I I bet you Jesus was a short king of kings. Rex of Rex. <laughs> but uh they uh you wanted them to be beetles blah 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 and eventually they get to this point and like del toro was saying that was affecting their ability to build practical models um because the del, the producers would come in and get mad that the stuff was set in stone because ultimately and this is where we're kind of going del toro wanted to um, Del Toro uh, wanted to have more control over his movies, which is natural because uh, comp- this sort of producer-compromised vision from people like Bob Weinstein, who have absolutely no fucking vision, um, <laughs> yeah. ruins movies, whereas like a single director um, can make a movie great or at least make it bad and interesting. <laughs> and in a movie like this, uh, he learned his lesson. He uh, eschewed as much as he could uh, second-unit directing, um, because mm-hmm. he wanted to have more control to uh, it affected the way he moved his camera because he didn't want to have fast cuts because it was easier for directors to come in or a producer to come in and just steal yep. what he had done and um, you know, cut around it and make the movie, you know, an 80 minute quick, quickie horror movie. Um, whereas if you take these long takes, it's actually much harder to, to do that. Um, you kind of have to keep the whole take. And, um, as well, it, it gave him a deep distrust of anybody else touching his footage before he got a chance, which like something that Del Toro is very famous for is he edits while he's um, shooting his movies now because of Mimic, because he would immediately take his footage in. Say, all right, we're shooting a bunch of shit this week. I'm going to go into the editor's booth, like, on Saturday and figure this out or whatever day and figure this out. And so he, like, finishes – sometimes he finishes the cuts of his movies, like, um, six days after the movie is done, finished principal photography because he's been editing the entire time, which is nuts. Like, uh, Tarantino doesn't do this. Tarantino tends to leave almost everything – um with his editor and trust his editors um throughout uh del toro this movie gave del toro such a distrust of second unit directors of producers of editors that he was like fuck it i'm taking full control and this affected his whole career and that's why his movies feel like del toro movies because he is constantly involved from all filmmaking aspects um and i'm not saying that's an objective truth, but it gave him uh, an objective uh, value. But I am saying uh, that value affected uh, his movies going forward, especially yeah. the movies we're going to talk about um, where he had to work with, you know, big studio voices coming. up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a
0: couple of things I want to mention about this movie, and then I uh, I think we can wrap up here. So one is so Charles Dutton's in Charles S. Dutton's in this movie. That guy had a grimy nineties. Like, he's in this He's in this and Alien 3. Like, two of the darkest, coldest, like uh they he just, you know, he he didn't get to see Sun on movie sets, I think, for a good portion of the nineties. Uh, but he's a, he's always very he's a welcome presence. Um This movie is like the kids getting killed in this movie is fucking brutal. Uh, kid, kids like, and
1: dogs get killed in this gory detail, and then like they, when that let kid, let kid is like know those kids too, yeah, oh yeah, that kid is trapped his leg gets trapped
0: in old discarded like sewage barbed wire while his uh while his friend gets murdered, and you're like, okay, well, he's gonna escape, and no, like he screams for a while and then he also gets horribly murdered by by the mimic. Bug. And like you mentioned, yeah, the CGI is from 1997. We're gonna talk about that next week about CGI from 1998. The there is a lot of practical effects and a lot of practical monsters, and all of them look fucking great. Like it, the problem is is like the flying giant man sized cockroach that zooms through the subway. Uh, that doesn't work. But like uh, you know, Charles Dutton getting like his leg cut through by a giant one that's like you know a physical. Special effects monster next to him is is great. And the last thing I'll say: this movie doesn't just have baby Josh Brolin; it has another baby
1: in it. Baby Norman Reedus.
0: Right yeah, a, a, an actor we've never talked about Norman Reedus. He is perplexing to me because he's he is someone who I like, too, I don't care for him at all.
1: Uh, I like and him, I, and I
0: don't know why. Oof. Okay, see that's interesting because I don't like him. And I don't like him for very specific reasons. Like, like he's not in that ma- – I looked at his filmography and I'm like, is there some part that people like him for that I just don't – I haven't seen or I'm forgetting about? He's basically been in no things that you've seen except tiny bit parts here except for the Boondock Saints movies and, and fucking Walking Dead. Two things that not only do I hate, I and I shouldn't say this. I hate the fans of a little bit, too. Like, if you tell me your favorite show is The Walking Dead and your favorite movie is Boondock Saints, I am going to at least look look at you with somewhat of a skeptical eye. Or, like, these are some of your favorites. And I think the thing is, like, I am not going to toot my own horn here, Peter. But... I saw Boondock Saints when I had to import it from Canada because you couldn't get the DVD in the United States. Because all of my video store friends were talking about this amazing, hard-to-find movie that was great. Like b- a couple years before, it blew up and became this like big thing again. And I bought it from an, in my freshman year in college from an import store in Canada. And I watched it. I thought it was the worst fucking movie I'd ever seen. I hated it. I was like, I, I, I feel like a weird thing to be like. I was there first on. But I I feel like amongst my friends, too, who are all like, you're crazy. It's one of the best movies. I was very early in my Boondock Saints hate. and I didn't understand it. And here's the thing. I hated, like, Sean Patrick Flannery, I didn't have the hate associated with it because he was young Indiana Jones, which I used to watch, right? Like, so even though I didn't like Sean Patrick Flannery in that movie, I had some of that affection of him being young Indiana Jones. (laughs) Like, that's hard to break. But this other guy, fucking... I fucking hated them because I, I hated their characters. So I, I feel like my hate of the movie and the boondock saints and like how bad all their dialogue and scenes are was really sucked right into Norman Reedus. And then the next thing of any capacity I see I in is, is Walking Dead, a show I hate quit midway through the, the second season, which is uh, a show that I on paper should have liked, but we've talked about The Walking Dead, about how so yeah, but those are the only two things, really. I guess if you like Death Stranding, I don't. I don't know. Like, I really don't care for Norman Reedus.
1: Uh, I like Norman Reedus without being able to properly explain why. But we will get into it in Blade Two because he is oh, that's right. a significant part of that movie. Um, but yeah, maybe that's I, where your affection comes from. I liked Boondock right? Saints when it when I first saw it when uh, I was 12. oh interesting. And then around 15, I saw more movies. And then I was like, I liked it just like, oh, I like, you know, stylish movies with shootouts in it. Like, I, was, I wasn't, I was like, yeah. uh, obsessed with it or anything. Um, and then by 15, I had, like, seen more movies, particularly more, like, John Wu movies and shit. And I was like, oh, everything this movie does is bad. And then I started to get more politically active. And I was like, oh... This movie it's is picking up so on, this movie is picking up on basically conserva memes. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, this movie sucks shit. Like it was a movie that like I caught on with by the time I was 16. I, had, I, I, learned to hate it. I don't know what time you, I don't know what age you were when the movie came out, but. Um, I was 18. So yeah, I, uh, it was 2001. And But if you had seen um, it when you were
0: 12, would you have liked it? Probably not because I didn't like. I mean, I had a general. I've talked about this. Like, I generally didn't like action movies and horror movies for a, for a good chunk of that. Like, I thought they were kind of brainless and not interesting. I was a big sci fi, like mind bender thing. <laughs> like, I loved the game. Right. Like, I saw the game in theaters in '97, Peter, and I'm like, this is the shit. What is reality?
1: What so is reality, I, I'm a though? weird.
0: I'm a little bit of a weird. kid. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I yeah I wasn't. Um... Was is, I, I wasn't obsessed with it or whatever, but we can talk about Normaritas as an actor because I find it very confusing, but I quite like him as an actor, um, hmm. which is very strange. But um, anyways, so, um, Oh uh, yeah. So that was, a, that was the last thing to, I had. about the movie. Jumping That's back something. to the practical stuff really quickly. Cause I have some final yeah. thoughts. Um, and Great. this will lead me towards, um, our blade two episode, which will be in a few weeks. Um, but, uh, the, the scenes where there's practical stuff, are very impressive. They're very... There's a scene where they're chopping up a, a, a bug to get in and get all the guts, and they're showing off the weird skull pattern, Uh, you know, exoskeleton. All yeah. of that shit is just straight up a feeder into what he's going to do in Blade 2. Like, all of this is just a, a precursor to what he's going to do in Blade 2. The C, the CGI bug shit, it's not really that interesting. It's bad CGI, there's movies I like with bad CGI. Like, I really like Deep Rising and The Mummy from this era. Um, I think those, that CGI is charming. It's not only really charming here. It kind of actually, like, whenever the bug is not practical, it gets less scary for me. Um, yeah. But um, Guillermo del Toro says two bad things happened to him in the late 90s. His father was kidnapped in Mexico. And, oh, yeah. In uh, 97. too. Yeah. So he, he had just like a, a, a fairly epically bad late nineties, um, before moving on, um, taking back his sense of control. But this movie isn't a movie that he ran away from in 2000, I believe it was 2010. He came back, he did his director's cut, which we talked a little bit about. There's, it's, it's not massive differences, but the pace is a little bit better. He took out a couple scenes he hated, he took out some second unit stuff he hated, um, and uh this is but this is a a kind of a launching point for some of for some of the work he would do in his future movies this is the first time he worked with doug jones um doug jones is going to be a pretty huge part of all of his upcoming movies um including ship of water which we've talked about previously um doug jones has a fairly minor role as one of the um long johns um mr funny funny shoes um the 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 human mimic kind of uh hybrids um as well this shows off some of uh del toro's some other uh, obsessions which is like the obsession with the subways particularly the new york subways hellboy one has a action sequence to top off act number one with one of the like frog creatures um that is essentially the climax of this movie (laughs) Yeah, a, a big fucking monster goes out of the subway tracks and the shot is essentially the same. The CDC stuff and treating these these uh, these creatures and the, this plague as like uh, a disease that needs to be treated. That would feed directly into Del Toro's work with Chuck Hogan and the Strain series of books, which I've read and are not good and you don't need to read them. Uh, and also the Strain TV series, which is fucking miserable. But that's another one of Del Toro's obsessions um and the sewers the sewers and the subways of new york like i just talked about like that stuff all feeds directly into blade 2 and hellboy this idea that there's this underworld underground world below the thriving metropolis of new york which which del toro loved um that there was this thriving world beneath this forgotten world this world of the the victorian era that was just waiting under the streets to be to be awakened And uh, another last piece that we're going to talk about is um, specific musical cues. So this movie has a pretty great Marco Beltrami score. Um, Marco Beltrami wrote good scores for bad movies, (laughs) Um, notably uh, like Dracula 2000. Uh, The score in this movie is pretty good. And one thing that del Toro steals for Blade 2 is this like twinkly horror bells for gross shit happening. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of, like, vibrant, like, almost like a uh, bug swarming, uh, uh, an open wound kind of sound with uh, his his choruses that's so cool. And it's basically just, like, moments are lifted straight from this into Blade 2. So, like, uh, I don't have a whole lot to, to, to say that I, like, love, love about this movie. But, like, my final thoughts are essentially that Mimic is... The kind of movie that like i can't get out of my head as a horror dork because it is so unique visually it's a gorgeous looking movie the the visuals yeah. are gorgeous uh it's a gorgeous looking movie with um a great lurid sense of place like every scene feels like a scene scene like he put time to building you know set sets this is before cgi sets took over actors feet are wet actors are breathing in dust like there is a sense of place um and the monsters while half cgi the the practical half i'm like this is some of the most impressively gross shit i've seen outside of like movies like alien resurrection where like um, of this era, where Alien Resurrection is like, oh, we're just gonna make like a million gross alien models and throw yeah. them at you, which is one of the, re- the reasons I love Alien Resurrection. So, uh, yeah, this this movie has a specific place in history, though it it unfortunately kind of has to be a um a dry run. Unfortunately, a goo gooey run, but a dry run. Um, for movies that I think I'm gonna have a lot more affection for later.
0: Yeah, I, this was a fun revisit. I agree. I had fun. Like, there's the chance of me rewatching Mimic with all the other things I need to see outside of doing this uh, this double month was was slim to none. And I'm glad I did. Like, I um, I have a lot of appreciation for it. It's definitely a fun, gory, gross, grody, all the G words uh, monster movie. And it does like you know when I first saw this. Obviously, I had no idea who Del Toro was. I wasn't cool enough to have seen Chronos in 1997 when I was 14
1: uh but like it even s- have like an english dubbed version yeah who who knows <laughs> like i don't even know if i could
0: have but let alone i definitely wasn't cool enough to have figured that out uh yet but so like revisiting a movie of a director who i anticipate every single one of his projects um and really seeing a lot of those um those things that i love about him uh in like in place in this movie that kind of feels like a, oh yeah he did mimic after Kronos? Because Kronos is really good. And he did that Mimic movie? Like, it makes a lot more sense in context. But we're going to have a lot more to talk about all these people. I do think this sets up because uh, next week, so while you kind of look at the bookends here, right? Like, we're, we started, in weirdly, in 2001 with Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And then, but, and then we, we talked about 1997. So in between 1997 and 2001, uh, the the comic book genre era is dead. We're about at the end of the '80s and '90s action stars too, and they combine the two of those to make a movie that becomes a huge box office hit. Again, the biggest Marvel movie of all time uh, at that point, directed by a director who doesn't exist, uh, and also weirdly feels very much of a piece with what The Matrix would do a year later Uh, and that is Stephen Norrington's 1998 uh, movie adaptation or reimagining of Marvel's Blade character. So I'm really excited to talk about that. I already rewatched it um, for the first time in a while and I had a ton of fun with that even if, as I've told you some things that I would have said in say the year 2000 like how it has one of the best villains ever of all time. I don't necessarily stand by, but uh, I still think it's it's fucking fantastic. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Although we definitely will be going down the questionable CGI train with the old blood god on that one
1: uh yeah yeah that's um it's just you know it's, uh, if you're gonna like action movies from the late 90s to early 2000s you're just gonna have to get on board <laughs> with the question <laughs> i'm a i'm 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 a i'm a noted uh you know uh steven summers the mummy fan as well as a uh, uh, you know a deep rising fan like i uh yeah. I, I i i i i uh I, i've grown to accept certain movies uh in gross indulgences but like uh you know, we're going to we're gonna have to mark it off. I think it hurts Mimic more than it hurts Blade, though.
0: I, I do, too. I think the intent in this one saves it. And also, it's worth noting, like, I remember in 1998, some of the sequences, like the ending sequence of, like, Stephen Dorff exploding. I remember thinking it looked like
1: complete shit and I still loved it. So it's not one of those Some things of where I'm like. that stuff does get a little nostalgic or, you know, you get a little. Well, bit that's, like the, that. That.
0: that's the thing. It's like, I'm not looking back and going, oh, this aged like milk. Like, this looked like old milk in 1998, <laughs> but it still ruled and it rules now. So I think that that weirdly helps it in that, like i i don't have memories of something that like is a greater uncanny valley than i anticipated like i was fully ready for for blood explosion to look like shit and i actually think it works somewhat stylistically uh just because of how creepy it still ends up looking so i don't know i i loved it i'm excited to talk about blade peter next week on low to watch
1: good night good night love to watch Mmm. <laughs> Mwah.
0: <laughs>